0: With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can.
1: Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say, no, you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on tactics with host Caleb Colquitt, the situation room goes live now on news radio, 1440.
0: Well, good evening, everybody. And thank you so much for being with us here on tactics where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us here on the program. I know I have been kind of MIA here recently, well. No surprise there. For those of you that have been watching the show, you know that I'm in graduate school right now pursuing a master's in theology at Faulkner, and uh, it was finals week, and I wrote about, oh, 15, 16,000 words in the span of about two weeks and had to turn in all my assignments, so as you can imagine, I didn't have a ton of time to do other things, but I am back with you, and I am glad to be here because we have a lot to cover a lot of junk went on while i was gone and we're going to try to get caught up to the best of our ability because there was a lot that went on in local politics and as you know here at tactics local always takes priority and so we're going to go ahead and dive into it the first big story and this one's just completely unavoidable i would i mean this is the news story that happened while i was gone out of the like three weeks i didn't have a show If you're looking at the news stories from the angle of the the state of Alabama, there is no bigger news story, in my opinion, than this one right here. This is our governor, Kay Ivey, speaking to the national news media about the coronavirus situation here in the state.
1: The new cases in COVID are because of unvaccinated folks. Almost 100% of the new hospitalizations are with unvaccinated folks. And the
0: deaths are certainly occurring with unvaccinated folks. These folks are choosing a horrible lifestyle Horrible, just horrible. of self-inflicted pain. Besides, you know, this emotional plea you just gave us, what is it going
1: to take to get people to get shots in arms?
0: I don't know. You tell me. Folks supposed to have common sense. They have no common sense. And, but it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. It's the unvaccinated folks
2: that
1: are letting us name Yeah, get so, them out, the KIV. Don't you think it's your responsibility to try and
0: help get this situation under control? I've done all I know how to do. I can encourage you to do something, but I can't make you take care of yourself. I've been covering KIV for a while now. I have been doing talk radio in some form or another for about five, six-ish years now. And as you know, if you've been following Alabama politics, that covers KIV's rise to the governorship, some of her time as lieutenant governor. So the entire time she's been governor, I have been in some form a news person covering her. As I have told you many, many, many times on this program, KIV has exactly one political philosophy and that is stay out of the spotlight as much as possible keep your head down don't make waves whatever decision you have to make that's difficult make the least controversial one that will cause the least amount of stir the least amount of headlines that you can and she has faithfully stuck to that KIV has always been a spineless coward she refused to debate any of her opponents in her primary she has always tried to duck and cover and make sure that she is not in any way going out on a limb to saying anything controversial. For the first time since I ever remember covering her, K. actually grew a backbone. She saw an issue that she decided it was important for her to stand up, get tough, and talk harshly to somebody, which K.I.V. never does. I mean, the reason that she has been so overwhelmingly popular and elected is because she has this sort of sweet old grandma, old lady kind of swagger to her, and she never does anything controversial. She just kind of goes along to get along. That's who K.I.V. has always been. She's never been one to you know, speak truth to power or anything like that. This is the one time she has ever done that that I can ever remember, and I've lived in Alabama my entire life, and I've been a news person for the past six years. Isn't it incredible that the one issue she felt so passionate about, that she felt she had to have some harsh words for people, is when she's waggling her self-righteous finger at you? Think about that. The one thing that K. Ivey finally shows some gumption on and actually puts her neck on the line and walks out on a political limb is to tell you that you're a terrible person. That's the one thing she has courage enough to do. The corruption in Alabama, nope, not going to speak strongly about that. Uh, Even issues that I tend to agree with K. Ivey on, like abortion or gay marriage or things like that, doesn't go out on a limb on that one, doesn't give anybody a sermon, doesn't speak harshly to somebody, but, oh, all of a sudden, you, who is refusing to get vaccinated, you're about to get a sermon from Meemaw. This is really the one thing that she decides is worthy of that? That's absolutely astounding to me. It seems as though the one threat that she deems worthy enough to draw her ire the one enemy that she sees that is such a threat to her or whatever that is big enough to merit her scorn is you the citizen that's the only thing that K.I.V. sees as being worth putting herself politically on the line for to tell you that you're a terrible person and you need to shape up and you need to make better decisions. Again, I'm not putting words into KIV's mouth. She says, if you are unvaccinated, you are choosing to live a horrible lifestyle. You're to blame for this catastrophe. Now I wouldn't call it a catastrophe, but she's referring to it as a catastrophe. So we're looking at it from her perspective here. She says, you're the one to blame for all these problems. You're a horrible person. You're choosing a horrible lifestyle. And when asked well, what are you going to do? She's like, well, people have to have common sense. So obviously, if you are choosing not to be vaccinated in Kay Ivey's book, you're leading a horrible lifestyle and you have no common sense. This is the thing that gets her dander up and gets her ready to go. I mean, the, the, the sleeves get rolled up and she's ready to roll to fight. This is the one thing that gets her fighting mad. Not the fact that we have thousands of babies a year in the state of Alabama that die from abortion. Not any of the political corruption that goes on in this state, which unfortunately is rampant. None of that stuff. No, no, no. Don't, don't worry about that. Not, you know, people in Washington even. I mean, that p- people in Washington is the easy target for Alabama conservatives. But you don't see her coming out and saying stuff like this about Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. and no, no. no. That enemy is not worth going to the mattresses over. You, the Alabama citizen, for exercising your freedom and choosing not to partake of the virus if you don't want to, you're the threat. You're the dangerous one. You're the one that KIV has to do something about. This is the governor you selected, Alabama. Overwhelmingly, landslide victory had three significantly more conservative people than her running against her in the primary, and you chose Meemaw. You get the government you deserve. You sleepwalk through every election. You pick anybody that has an R behind their name, regardless of their credentials or what kind of policies they actually support. But hey, they've they've got an ad where they're sitting in a church and talking about how much they love Jesus. They must be okay, right? Well, that's every freaking Alabama politician, but okay. We get the government we deserve. And I hate to say that because I know I'm preaching to the choir here, and I know a lot of people in my audience are the ones that didn't vote for KIV in that primary. That aren't necessarily the biggest KIV fans. I know I'm preaching to the choir there, but to everybody that may be a KIV supporter, I hope this finally rips the masks off and shows you this woman is not a conservative. Nor is she somebody that cares about the individual liberties of the citizens of her state. She cares about keeping her office. And you saw it right there. The reason she gets worked up is because the media was hounding her. She cares more about what the media thinks about her than what you think about her. And that comes out in that interview. The truth is... I said, and I meant it, I, I stand by what I said, that this is Kay Ivey finally growing a back, backbone on one issue. And, and that's true. I mean, she does actually get worked up and shows some actual passion for a change. But the other side of that is, in a sense, this is also an outgrowth of my one rule. You see, Kay Ivey is so terrified of being blamed for something that she is willing to put the blame off on anybody. And unfortunately, this is a very human trait. It was literally the first thing that Adam and Eve did once they got caught committing the world's first sin. God looks at Adam and goes, Adam, why aren't you naked? And Adam says, well, you see, this woman you gave me, you know, this woman that you gave me trying to deflect the blame off on Eve and God. He's trying to say, no, 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 it was anybody's fault but mine. And then when God turns to Eve and says, Eve, is that what happened? I'm paraphrasing here, of course. Bible according to Caleb, that's a scary thought. Eve goes, well, it was this serpent that that tricked me into partaking of the fruit. Serpent didn't trick her into anything. Oh, he, he gave her a nudge for sure, but that's not to say that she didn't want the fruit. If she hadn't, she wouldn't have taken it. And so she tries to defer the blame, and this is the same human problem that has gone on with our species ever since then. And K.I.V. is doing exactly the same thing. She's terrified that the national news media is going to run headlines about her saying K.I.V. has the most unvaccinated state in the country, which we do. We're going to get to those stats in a little bit, but. Uh, They're going to blame her for this, and this thing is going to hit the fan, and everything's going to be terrible. You're going to have bubonic plague levels of pandemic, and Kay is going to be on the hook for it. And because of that, that thought terrifies her, and she feels like she's been backed into a corner. You can hear the frustration. She's like, I don't know what else I can do. And so what she does is she lashes out at the only people she can think of to blame, people in her state that don't want to get the vaccine. She's perfectly fine throwing her constituents under the bus and blaming them just so she can defer any kind of responsibility or negative press that she might get. Now, here's the thing. If it hadn't been done in that way, if she had taken the attitude of, look, I've recommended the vaccine to people. I think that they should get it. I've told them that it's something we should be encouraging people to get, but I can only do so much. You know, if they don't want to get the vaccine and then they, you know, God forbid something bad happens to them and they have a rough bout with COVID-19, I, I hate that for them, but that's what freedom looks like. See, if that had been Kay response, I would be praising her right now, even though she disagreed with the stance of the people on the anti-vax side, because the thing is I'm not anti-vax either, and I'll get into that in a second as well, but Even though she disagreed with the people on the anti vax side, it's perfectly fine to have a disagreement with somebody. But it's not that. She has a disdain for the choice that they have made. She dislikes the fact that they have freedom to do that. She feels like her hands are tied, and there's nothing more that she can do, even though she would really, really want to. And she's upset at those people for sort of propagating this process by in which she's being grilled by the media and they're saying well you're the governor can't you do anything It's like no no don't blame me blame my idiot constituents out there that are horrible people and living a terrible lifestyle and uh, they don't have common sense and i can't make them take care of themselves so blame them no no go go after them please stop grilling me about this the willingness to throw you under the bus to save her own skin shows what kind of politician kiv really is i think this is as dumb maybe not quite as much but i think this is as dumb as mitch mcconnell making his hill to die on no we're not going to give the american people two thousand dollars a piece now remember i disagreed with that decision i'm a libertarian i don't like the government sending people checks I thought that was a very bad idea. But look at the optics of what happened with Mitch McConnell with that. He's fine passing trillions of dollars to uh, pay for everything on the Democrat wish list, including ridiculous things like transvestite education in Pakistan. That he's fine with. You don't have to twist my arm on that one. Oh, I'll, I'll vote for that right now. But then all of a sudden, when Trump, again, didn't like this idea, but comes up with the idea is like, no, I'm not going to sign it until uh, we spend $2,000 on each American citizen that was impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. Mitch McConnell goes, oh, well, that's that's crazy. We don't have the money for that. Okay, you're, you're fine with all the crazy liberal spending bills, but sending the American people's money back to them, that's where you draw the line. That's your hill to die on. Again, I actually agreed with Mitch McConnell's conclusion there. But the way that he got there portrayed the kind of person that he really is and who he's really looking out for. And K. I. V. Ivey just did exactly the same thing. And I'm not surprised. I hope there are some citizens of this state that are. K. I. V. is the most popular governor in the United States of America. This has happened in several different opinion polls. I think that she may very well be unbeatable as far as an election goes. But I'll tell you right now, if she keeps saying crap like that, even she won't be able to survive the storm that happens afterward. And if I were her primary opponent, if I were Dean O'Dell, by the way, who is coming up on in an interview on this program in just a little bit, he's, he's going to be on uh, not the next segment, but the one after. Or if I were Jim Ziegler, who hasn't announced yet, but is looking into running for the governorship, and I announce that I'm going to be her primary opponent, I tell you what I'm doing. I don't even necessarily worry about calling her out for her cowardice when it comes to the debate. What I do is I go to every podunk town in Alabama and run that soundbite nonstop. You don't even have to necessarily say your name. (laughs) Uh, Just run that soundbite over and over and over again. She just gave her primary opponents a gift bigger than any I can imagine in recent political history, even bigger, maybe, I mean, on a smaller scale, but proportionally, even bigger, maybe, than the Mitch McConnell debacle that I just laid out for you. And the thing is, on this particular issue especially, KIV has never, ever followed the data or followed the science. You remember for months on end, I collected the data myself and compounded it directly from the Alabama Department of Public Health's website because I didn't like their data compounding tools, so I did it myself every single day, weekends and everything, and we looked at the data every single day that I had a show over and over again, and it showed conclusively for months on end that the mask mandate that KIV instituted was having no effect, and that was true of every other state as well. And yet she held on to it for months after it should have been gotten rid of, even though it was still an illegal unconstitutional, according to the constitution of the state of Alabama, even though it was an unconstitutional mandate, at least I could understand if you take out the legality and the constitutionality of it, I can at least understand KIV's desire to have a mass mandate early on. When we didn't know anything about mask and it's something we've never done before. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's throw on the mask for two weeks and see if it works. Now, again, libertarian to me would say no no you don't mandate it you might be pushing it and recommending it but you don't mandate it but either way water under the bridge kiv did mandate it and kept us in a mask mandate longer than any other red state that i'm aware of was terrified of taking it off because the second they did and, and we started seeing cases go up which by the way didn't happen our cases after the mask were indiscernible from our case numbers before the mask because the masks don't work but there she was continuing to perpetuate a completely illegal mask mandate because that's where her sentiment is her sentiment is to control and to make sure the blame doesn't get passed down to her that's the only political instinct she actually has and like i said she she never really followed the science or followed the data at all she was always way more worried about the arbitrary case numbers than she was hospitalizations and fatalities, which is the real measure of how well you're doing as a state. You see, Governor Ivy's measure of success is how well she is liked. And she was afraid that if she got tons of bad press, she would not be well liked. Now, to be fair, this is the standard that most politicians have. Kay is not an outlier in this. But she cares much, much more about generally being liked and talked about well in the media and being talked about well amongst her constituents than she ever did about defending liberty. In her mind, that's a secondary concern, even if it is on the radar. And frankly, based on her behavior, I don't know that it really is. Let me tell you about something before we move on. Because there is a product that I've been using for several months now. Now, those of you who know me know that I am a cancer patient and I, you know, I'm technically not a survivor because you have to be five years out to be a survivor, but they basically have stopped even doing tests on me except for blood work just to monitor it. I don't have to do CT scans anymore. I've recovered. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the opposite happened with me with cancer in that most people get super skinny when they go through chemo. I had the exact opposite problem. I actually gained pounds. I gained about 50 pounds while I was on chemo because I was just eating constantly to keep the nausea at bay. For some reason, that's what worked for me. And because of that, I got fat. And I mean, I guess that's not bad considering I was going through chemo and probably needed that nutrition anyway, but I got pretty dang pudgy and put on about 50 pounds. And once I was done with the chemo, I had to figure out a way to knock it off. Now, this isn't the only thing that I did. I also did diet and exercise, but I got to tell you about this product right here. This is Built Bar. And Built Bar, I mean, just a fantastic product. They've got different flavors. This one, cookies and cream. Uh, And the nutritional value of these things are just fantastic. This one in particular has 17 grams of protein. It has only 130 calories. It's very low in fat. It only has five grams of sugar. And I thought for the longest time, I actually avoided protein bars because they're part of the thing that made me fat. It's because I was eating protein bars, just a little snack, a little pick me up between meals. But the thing is, those things are horrible for you because I picked the ones that taste good. Guess what? The ones that taste good are chock full of sugar. Not these things. Built bars are actually good for you and taste good. They're better than just about any candy candy bar you can imagine they start with taste and i gotta say my favorite one is probably either the peanut butter brownie the the mint brownie i've got the cookies and cream like i said there and i tell you cookies and cream not really my go-to flavor there's not a lot of cookies and cream flavored things that i like but the built bar absolutely fantastic they they've got all kinds of great flavors I have had the variety box. I probably had about 18 of their different flavors and I haven't had a bad one yet. They just came out with Rocky road and the way that you can get your own built bars, you can buy them by the box you can go to built.com. That's built.com. So be sure to check them out. And uh, I think you're going to like them just as much as I do. Let me know in the comment section, what your favorite flavor is. Once you've tried them, I got to tell you that mint brownie is fantastic, but I think peanut butter brownie has it beat, but man, it's close. I mean, I, I will eat that before I'll eat most of the candy bars. And the difference is it's lower in calories and way lower in sugar. So it's not only good, but good for you. Replacing my breakfast and just replacing a meal with these things, that helped me lose 50 pounds get back to my pre-cancer weight. And I'm sure that they can help you with your weight loss goals too. Or if you just want them because they taste delicious. I mean, I understand that as well. Go to built.com to get those. That is built.com. All right. So let's move on to some other news. AL.com has really on the coronavirus driven the panic porn extremely hard this past couple weeks. There's been several examples of this. The first one that I'm going to give you is Kyle Whitmire. Uh, (laughs) Kyle Whitmire, sometimes he he comes across some good points. There's, There's times where I've cheered Kyle Whitmire on and praised him for doing things that I thought were pretty good. But The past several weeks and really this entire pandemic, but especially in recent memory, Kyle Whitmire has been the end is nigh guy that's just like walking around as an underwear with a big picket sign saying the end is nigh. That's been Kyle Whitmire's shtick for the past several weeks. And this is just sort of the latest iteration of that. And it's getting more and more ridiculous. Like this is an article that he wrote for AL.com. For most here, it's too late. It's not too late for you. The situation in Alabama is dire, but a few folks here seem cognizant yet uh, yet of its seriousness. In less than a month, some South Alabama counties have seen case numbers go from next to zero to new pandemic heights. Every Alabama county has seen its COVID cases rise, but rather than take precautions to prevent the spread, most Alabamians seem to be going about their lives as if nothing has changed even in those countries expressing unprecedented new cases and doing so with the tacit approval, if not encouragement, of public officials. So this is, I guess, Kyle Whitmire standing uh, at the Citadel of Gondor going, Abandon your post! Flee! Flee for your lives! (laughs) That really is the kind of tone that Whitmire is striving with this thing. Uh, the, the world is ending, the end is nigh, everybody panic and run away. Uh, and you might say there, you might look at that and go, That's so ridiculous and over the top. I mean, do you expect more from Kyle Whitmire? Not really, but at the same in the same breath, like you could at least look at it as like, does, does this guy not realize the way he's doing is intentionally trying to spread panic and fear? Well, actually, to his credit, yeah, he actually does realize that. And if you don't believe me, you can read it in his own writing. This is from later in that same article that he wrote. No sooner will this column be published than my email inbox will, be fill, will fill again with vitriol, invective, and familiarly flawed arguments that masks don't work, that the virus is a hoax, and that vaccines aren't approved by the FDA. And that I'm trying to spread fear. To that last count, I plead guilty. Okay, well... At least he has enough self-awareness to admit it. I'll give Kyle Whitmire that one. But fear is not an irrational reaction when lives are at risk. Fear is the right response. In small doses, it can be healthy, life-preserving thing. We need a lot of small doses in Alabama, as many as we need vaccines. At some point, fear will catch up with Alabama, seconds behind its cousin, reality. Until then, Alabama will play the role it always does, the cautionary tale the example for America of what not to do. I Again, I got to give the guy props. At least he realizes he's fear-mongering. It's so funny to watch the left whenever Republicans talk about something like, uh, you know, they're coming for your kids, and we're actually going to address that later. They're, they're trying to corrupt your children through the public school system, or they're using critical race theory to push their gender like, this is just Republican fear-mongering, even though, you know, there's documentation of this happening and people saying that was their end goal with critical race theory. Uh, but apparently, when they fear-monger, it's cool, and it's the right thing to do because you need to be afraid. They want you to be afraid, and fear is a good thing when lives are at risk. Yeah. Uh, first of all, lives are always at risk. My life is at risk. Your life is at risk. You, you sitting in your living room eating Cheetos, a bus could come through your front door and kill you right now. The a meteor could fall on you. You could have a major aneurysm. Lives are always at risk. This is always a thing. And so the question is not, are lives at risk? Because lives are at risk. I mean, people have died from the coronavirus. I don't deny that. No sane person does. The question is, is the response and the fear that you have used to react to it appropriate to the situation? This is the thing that is not true. And we'll go over the statistics on that in a second. But the hilarity at the end of that of Alabama is going to serve as a cautionary tale. Basically, he's saying we're going to live in some kind of scorched earth, a post-apocalyptic bias tone. That's what you would suggest. That's what it sounds like he's suggesting, that the rest of America is going to be looking at Alabama just shaking its head going, oh gosh, I'm so glad we're not like those idiots down in Alabama, those country fried rubes living in the Yellowhammer state that just didn't know what to do and completely botched the coronavirus. Yeah. There's a little problem with that. The numbers don't come anywhere even close to the kind of thing that Kyle Whitmire is saying is going to happen. And again, I, I'm just going to follow the science and I'm going to use the Alabama Department of Public Health and other government sources to prove my point here. So, Here, we'll go ahead and go to the first graphic here. This is from the Alabama Department of Public Health. And you may notice here, this is uh, the daily seven-day and seven-day moving averages of the average number of cases. So you can see there in gray, that's just raw cases. The purple line there is your seven-day rolling average, which is a pretty good measure of, of how severe the cases are. Now, you look there. And uh, this is pretty scary. This is terrifying, right? Because you can go back and you can see that big spike we had actually right about this time last year. And then you can see that massive spike that happened right around the turn of the year. We saw so many cases. And then there's the cases today, which look roughly-ish the same as they did in the spike last year. They're actually tapering off a little bit. But it does look pretty similar to the spike that we had last year. And so, does Kyle Whitmire have a point? Should we all be afraid? Should we all flee for our lives and abandon our posts and all of that? I'm going to go with no. I, I see no reason to go with the doom by looking at this chart. And I'll show you why. This is the daily hospitalizations. Now, you'll see here a similar spike that we saw kind of goes along with and coincides with the chart that we just saw. But here's something that is a little bit eye-opening here. You'll see that that peak of hospitalizations, January 11th, uh, we had 3,084 active cases that were being hospitalized for symptoms of COVID-19. Look at where we are yesterday. Oh, actually, that one's for today. Sorry. Uh, So today's numbers for hospitalizations: 1,848. Okay, so barely over half. And that's after a really big surge today. This is the thing that you're terrified of. Remember that we're not even at half what we were back in January, and that was the peak. And on top of that, back in January, our hospitals didn't even get overrun. There was an influx, but 3000 cases were nowhere near beyond capacity for our hospitals. And so the idea that even if we're we're just barely over halfway to where our peak was back in January, and here's the other thing that you need to keep in mind too, not only are our hospitalizations not at that level yet, more importantly, the hospitalizations that we are having are less severe. This is something that we're seeing over the entire country. We are having people hospitalized because our therapy has gotten better. Our therapeutics have gotten better. And because some of these people are breakthrough cases that have gotten the vaccine. So in other words, they do get coronavirus. They do get sick. Some of them go into hospitalization. Those cases are also less severe. But even the ones that have no vaccine at all, that have no protection, as it were, when they're getting this virus, they're not having it nearly as bad as they did. Partly, I think, just based on some of the data that I've seen, because it seems like the the Delta variant is more contagious but less severe. And this is something we're seeing in countries all around the world, that there are people getting infected at a higher rate and faster, but the cases are not as severe. Part of that may be the vaccine. Part of that may be that the Delta variant itself is less strong, so it burns through a population faster, but because of that, it burns out quicker. And so that may be part of the reason for that as well. I, you know, I can't conclusively prove that because it'll take more data to be able to find out whether or not the vaccine is what's actually doing that, or it's just that the Delta variant is more contagious and less deadly naturally. But either way, we're not having the severity of cases, even though what we actually saw was a drop in the bucket it was a yawn compared to what they were predicting at the beginning of this thing when they were telling us that we were going to see like you know a sixth of americas population get this thing and like a tenth of us die from it and all this which was ridiculous and was never going to happen but anyway that's where we were so that was the hospitalizations now i want you to take a look at this next one which is even more telling of the fact that we're really not dealing with a massive threat here these are the deaths isn't that interesting where's the spike what happened to the spike we've got the spike there about this time last year just like we did on the the chart for cases and we see the big spike in january just like the spike in cases w- where's the death spike in fact It looks like it's a lot lower than, you know, March and April of last year. Before the first spike even hit, we're not seeing really any cases for the state of Alabama. Not many. So let's do a comparison here. The peak for deaths was on January 14th at 96. Now, of course, any loss of life by an Alabamian is a tragedy. But even at the absolute worst that it could get, the worst day that we had for coronavirus, we lost 96 Alabamians. That's bad. But this is a state with 488, sorry, 4.88 million people. 96 is not a massive death toll, especially when you consider most of these deaths happen to be people that were older. and, And I mean, of course, it's tragic when a person of any age dies. But. You know, it may have been someone that might not have lived much longer. Anyway, now let's compare that to the deaths today. Yesterday's deaths, zero. That's not hyperbole. I'm not rounding down. It was literally zero. We had no deaths yesterday. And if you look at the seven day average of deaths, it's roughly two and a half ish. Somewhere around there. So, yeah. Uh, The idea that we are in pandemic levels, as Kyle Whitmire tries to point to, trying to say that we are, uh, you know, we're going to be the cautionary tale. There's going to be dead bodies from coronavirus just piled up in the streets, which is, again, he didn't say that. I don't want to attribute something to him that he didn't say. But with the tone, that's what you would you would think when you hear it's like this is going to be a cautionary tale. People talk about this, about how Alabama is the example of what not to do. Yeah, our our deaths are zero right now. And a few days ago, there were three. And a few days ago, there were uh, seven. And a few days ago, there were zero again. This is not something that in a state of 4.88 million people, we need to worry about. And so what happened here is that the vaccines did their job. This is why it's so hilarious when people call me anti-vaccine. I just showed you the data. I mean, look at it. It's right here. I I can show it to you, and you know I'm a data guy. That's the deaths that we were dealing with. That's cases. Deaths, cases. Deaths, cases. See, cases spike up. Deaths, no spike. What's the difference? What's the X factor? It's a number of different things, but chiefest among it is the vaccine. The vaccine did its job. It's working. And that's something that we should be rejoicing in. We should be thrilled that this thing is working as well as it is. And yeah, there are some people that are having breakthrough cases. And and yes, I have pointed out that there are risks to it, just like any other vaccine. There are some people that shouldn't be taking it because they're at higher risk of side effects than they are of this virus. That is also true. Multiple things can be true at once here. But the idea that we should be panicking when it's very clear that the vaccine did exactly what we thought it was going to do, which is made it to where deaths really from this thing really aren't a problem. Even with the breakthrough cases, people just are not dying at the rates that they were before. And that's something we should be celebrating. You know, it's hilarious to me that Kyle Whitmire and Johnson and all these other guys are are so hard pushing for the vaccine when it's clear that the vaccine's already doing what it's supposed to do. And why is that? If if Alabama truly does have the uh, the least vaccines in the state, or or, of the state, sorry, what's going on there? Well, actually, that's pretty clear, too. And all you have to do is look at the data. Again, this is why I love data, because data is always right. So let's go ahead and look at the data there. Ah, these are deaths and cases broken up by age. Well, you'll see there is a, a big chunk of the cases, the bulk of the cases, almost 50%, so 42.3% of the cases in the state of Alabama between the ages of 25 and 49. These are largely, just like KIV attested to at the beginning, largely unvaccinated people. But you know what's happening to them? They're not having severe cases. Our therapeutics have gotten pretty good. We know how to treat this thing. We know to let people lie on the stomach. We know to give people things like Ivemectrin and hydroxychloroquine, and we know other therapeutic things that we can do. We've gotten better at treating this thing. Then the vaccine makes it to where the people that are vaccinated don't have as serious cases of this. Look at where our deaths are. You'll see that very few, and this is the way it has always been very few of those deaths are in the demographic that have the most coronavirus cases. That's what's going on here. Most of the new cases that we're having, the surge in cases that we are having, are mostly young people, mostly unvaccinated, but they don't die from this virus. The vulnerable people, by and large, have been getting vaccinated. And that's exactly what they should do. I've recommended members of my own family get the vaccine if they're over a certain age or have certain risk factors, and that's exactly what they should be doing. And those people have gotten vaccinated. and so mission accomplished gang let's pack it up and go home i mean yeah I keep monitoring it but other than that there's really no reason to do much of anything else because freedom actually worked giving people choices actually worked when people that were at high risk of this thing looked at their options and they're like i could take a risk and maybe die from this thing or i could take the vaccine which seems to have less side effects for people in my age group and then to protect me from a virus which is deadlier to people in my age group they took the vaccine and now deaths are going down. So yes, cases are spiking, but so what? The deaths are staying pretty much the same as they've been for the past several months. And that's because the vaccine did exactly what it was supposed to do. Now, as further proof of this, let's go ahead and look at this graphic by worldometers. So you'll see there that we are indeed the lowest vaccinated. Uh, We have the highest population in the state of Alabama of unvaccinated people but that's still only 34%. And so that means over 60% of them have. And if you look at the distribution of who is vaccinated, this comes from the Mayo Clinic in Alabama. Look at the people age 65 plus, 73.5. Now, personally, with the exception of, of course, individuals that may have a health reason for not taking it, I think that that number probably should be higher. It should be closer to 100. And for the people that are over 65 and haven't gotten vaccinated, you know, I don't think anybody should force you and that's your decision, but if you were asking my advice, yeah, I'd say you probably should. But the reason that we're not seeing deaths from this thing is because the people that were vulnerable looked at the data, made a decision on their own that was in their best interest, and it worked. Freedom, giving people the power over their own destiny and giving them options tends to lead to good results. You don't have to mandate it to people. You don't have to force feed them. You don't have to wag your finger when they decide not to. I mean, seriously, the approach that Whitmire and some of these other people have done, are you actually trying to get people to not take the virus? Because if you are, your messaging is exactly correct. If I were somebody that had some risk factors and was on the fence about taking the virus, everybody coming down and telling me I'm a horrible person for not wanting to get the virus, that's going to make me not want to get the virus. It really is. That that motivates me to not get it. And that's especially true in Alabama because the one political rule about Alabama that's always true is Alabamians do not like being told what to do. Heck, I think the reason that we are the most unvaccinated state right now is because of that sentiment. Because we're tired of people preaching to us and telling us what we're going to do and so there's a part of us that wants to not do it just out of spite. And you may say that silly and it, it may very well be. I mean, that's probably not a healthy attitude to have, but whether it is or not, it's the truth. And if you want Alabamians to take this vaccine, then shut up, tell them the information, but leave it at that and say, if you want to get it, fine. If you don't, fine. And if you don't get it and you get really sick and die from it, you bear the consequences of that. But I'm not going to give you a sermon about it. If they took that approach, I guarantee you our vaccine rates would be higher, especially against those that are more vulnerable. And for the ones that are unvaccinated that are under where that risk lies, so what? They're not vaccinated, but they're at low risk for it anyway, so why does it matter to you? If you're vaccinated and you made that choice, why should you care? You know, we aren't vaccinated that much overall, but we're vaccinated by and large where it counts with over 70% of our people over 65 and I do think that this also kind of throws a monkey wrench into this narrative that the left has bi- been trying to propagate that, oh, it's just a bunch of old white Trump voters. um This is Alabama, the most pro-Trump state in the country. And the older people in the state especially are the Trump voters, and over 70% of them have been vaccinated. So I'm sure there's some you know rabid Trump supporters that haven't gotten vaccinated, but you know what? The idea that it's just Trump supporters and just people on the right that haven't made this decision, the data simply does not back that up, but I guess that only leaves me with the question is why is Kyle Whitmire denying science? I mean, it's very clear if you're following the science, if you're looking at the data and reading the threat that this thing actually brings, that there's no way you could come to the conclusions that Kyle Whitmire does. So obviously Kyle Whitmire is a science denier. That's the only logical conclusion that I can reach on that. And uh, another great article from Ahill.com. This one's less about fear, even though there's an aspect of that as well. But this one is more trying to point out hypocrisy in people that are anti-vax. So we'll go ahead and take a look at this one. This is from Chloe Cook, who is an executive director for Sidewalk Film in Birmingham. I love that, by the way. Yeah, let's trust the experts and listen to their advice. You know, like people that run film companies in Birmingham. Those, those are the medical experts we need to be listening to. You know, like like, like Bill Gates. Uh, those people, or Z- Zuckerberg, who's running Facebook. That's that's a medical expert that we need to be listening to and click his stupid little notification every time you say the word COVID in a Facebook post. Those are the people we really should be listening to and, and take our medical advice from them. Or, you know, like Joe Biden, your barber, your, bar, your, your local barber. Uh, we're going to take medical advice from your barber. And uh, that will be the way that we're going to keep everybody healthy. Uh, So listen to the experts really just means listen to people that agree with us and and say what we want them to say. That's that's what they mean when they say listen to the experts. So uh, Chloe Cook, who, you know, nothing wrong with voicing an opinion just because you're not a doctor. I don't have a problem with it. Obviously, I do it every day. I'm just saying it's hilarious watching all these people. Who are like, no, we should trust the experts saying, hey, listen to this random street vendor that we found that has some opinions that we like. So we're going to publish them in our publication. Uh, Chloe Cook writes this for AL.com. Go ahead and read this. Uh, I'm reading, listening, and following along with conversations online. There's such an interesting divide out there. The people that are comfortable following the guidelines of the CDC and recommendations of the medical community and the people that are not comfortable with that at all. I started noticing a lot of the people that don't want businesses to close down and talking about our freedoms are also not willing to get the vaccine or willing to wear a mask or follow social distancing guidelines. It's just on my heart to point out that I don't think those two things can exist simultaneously in in a person. You can't claim to be pro business, pro schools, or non normalcy, whatever that means, if uh, you're not willing to follow any of the advice that's being provided to us by the medical community. And it's putting a lot of businesses, small and large, and a lot of nonprofits in jeopardy. And I think it's going to end up putting a lot of our young people in jeopardy when school starts back. By the way, there was one other part of that article that I forgot to include where she basically said you can't be pro-business and anti-vax now i'm pro-vax i just laid out the case for why the vaccines are working and i showed you the data that seems to suggest since that's the only other x factor that we can attribute that to that the vaccines are doing exactly what they're supposed to do which is keep people from dying from coronavirus but chloe cook apparently is saying you can't be anti-vax and pro-business yeah you can and I especially love her longer explanation that we just read where she's like, you can't claim to be pro-business and be against anything that the experts in the medical community are saying. Did you sleep through 2020? Like, do you not remember the people that were saying that everybody should shut down from now until the end of time? Because I do. I remember that when we had businesses in Alabama and in other places opening up and medical experts were saying, no, no don't do that. No, 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 no. It's too early. You're rushing it. Um, we would have lost our entire economy and lots more businesses on top of the ones that actually legitimately closed by following the medical experts advice. And not all of them, because there were several medical experts that thought that it was perfectly fine and reasonable open back up again we, we covered that too but what she's talking about and following to the letter what the cdc was recommending what about all those businesses out in the state of california that actually went under because they were locked down for so long and the small businesses that just couldn't get aid from the federal government even though it was put out there specifically for them they were unable to access that uh, we saw that even in states as red as texas alabama had it too we had less of it but we had you know quite a, a bit of it And so I guess you just forgot that 2020 happened because a lot of those policies, very anti-business. It very much reminds me of the argument, the idiotic argument that Democrats make all the time when it comes to the issue of abortion. They'll be like, well, you can't be pro-life unless you're in favor of all the crazy welfare programs that I like. Uh, Yeah, I can. Now, if you wanted to make the case that a truly compassionate person would be in favor of these welfare programs. I think you're dead wrong, but I'm at least willing to hear that case. But to say that there's absolutely no reasonable rationale that a person could possibly want you to not kill a child unless you're willing to pay for everything that he's going to need in his life. Um, No, like if I see some random child on the street, I may not be willing to adopt him myself because, you know, I'm a single bachelor, but that doesn't mean that I'm willing you know i would i would be okay with someone just coming up and murdering him like that's not the same thing and so they, they constantly try to connect to these dots where there's really no connection to take place and what's more funny is that al.com saw this as printworthy media some rando on the internet uh spouting off this stuff that doesn't make any sense but because they believe in it and because they agree with it they're like yep we'll, we'll go ahead and they found like the one business owner in the state of alabama and i don't even know if they actually own a business it sounds almost more like a non that sidewalk film but you know either way they found like the one person that seems like they should be in favor of businesses opening back up in alabama and decide and and they were like well that's one person that agrees with us in that community so we're going to publish that um but sadly that's not where it ends it actually gets even worse, from AL.com, there's an article by Roy Johnson, and I got to say, I found this one quite amusing. If nothing else, just because of the way it starts out. So this is an article by Roy Johnson, who uh, is apparently very mad that Kyle Whitmire is trying to one-up him on the panic porn. He's, he's mad that Kyle Whitmire is doing a better job than him of scaring the pants off of everybody. And so he's trying to, uh, you know, they're constantly trying to out-liberal one another Roy Johnson and Kyle Whitmire over at AL.com. And uh, so he counters with this article, and I love the way it starts. It's one of the funniest starts to an article I've ever seen. Children, that's what we're talking about here now. Children, your children. I'm going to give you a little advice here. Any article that starts out with something like that, you're pretty much guaranteed, maybe not always, but pretty much you can rest assured everything that follows that is utter crap. And the reason that I say that is, if you were going to lay out a rational case, uh, make some, some good, sound, logical arguments for why whatever view that you espouse is going to be important here, is, is going to be logically sound, you wouldn't have to start with a ridiculous emotional appeal. You know, yelling the word children over and over again is not an effective argument. It's not an argument at all, actually. It's just trying to drum up people's emotions to prepare them for what is inevitably going to be something completely devoid of logic and nothing but emotional appeal. And we see this all the time with things like school spending that we spend way more money than any other country in the world on things like education and yet, they'll say that we hate children because we're not spending more money on education, even though there's countries that spend significantly less of their GDP on education that are kicking our butts when it comes to education. And so somehow if you just yell out the word, the children, then you have to agree with everything that I say afterward. Um, It's uh, I was watching some movie. I don't even remember what it was, but it was a while back. And one guy was like, it's for the children. And the entire crowd goes like weirdly and you're just like, yes, for the children. (laughs) that's what this reminds me of (laughs) anyway so let's go and actually dig into the uh the meat and potatoes of what roy johnson is talking about here there we go uh this is harsh to say i know harsh to even insinuate any parent does not love their child and would not do any and all uh, and all and more to protect them against every danger seen and unseen against anything that might take uh, make their child ill might send them to a hospital in dire need of urgent care, care might kill them. Yeah, what you described there, that's actually a really bad parent. And it's very rare that I say anything about anybody's parenting being, you know, a bachelor without any kids. But the worst kind of parent is one that abandons his kids or her kids, as the case may be. The second worst Is the helicopter parent the one that wants to protect their child from literally anything that can happen uh jordan peterson talks an awful lot about this that one of the most crippling things is making children so safe that they never adventure they never go out and uh, are able to start understanding the world world and understanding danger because of that they become so sheltered that they they literally cease to function in society when they're out on their own you have to invite at least a little bit of danger in there and I'm not saying that you uh, you know, intentionally put your kids in harm's way to where they will get seriously injured or anything like that, but there does need to be an element of danger, an element of adventure, an element of, of charging forward there. But that doesn't even really apply to this because there's so little danger, and we just showed you based on the charts, the death rates, the case rates, everything else, that the danger here is being so ridiculously overblown it's not even funny. But my point is what he's asserting there isn't even true in theory. Even if you take the the context of what he's talking about out completely, being a parent that protects their child from every single danger, that's a terrible parent. And one that is going to raise a child that is dependent, needy, and incapable of of functioning in a society. They just won't be able to do it. Because doing anything worthwhile incurs danger and risk. Obviously, some things do more so than others, like, Working on an oil rig is significantly more risky than what I'm doing right now, (laughs) but there is going to be some danger and risk in any activity that is worthwhile that a child can engage in. And so if you protect your kids from everything, you're actually crippling them. You're crippling them for life. And even though I'm not a parent, even I know enough to know that. Um, But the thing is, we've known that schools are not actually a major vector of disease since very early on. You may recall back in the summer that Europe opened their schools up, even Europe that was tight, that was locked down tighter than a tick because they start school in the summer, which is not traditional in, in the United States, but like, I want to say it's like early July or something like that. They start the second term of the year. So they opened their schools back up in the summer. And you know what? Every single study, Ireland, other parts of the UK, Germany, France, Every single one they did showed that schools were not a major vector of this disease. But if that's not good enough for you, if you want something more recent and you want something from American soil, you can go to this uber, uber conservative news publication. You may have heard of it. It's called the Washington Post owned by Jeff Bezos. Super, super conservative, like not, not a liberal working there at all. Uh, the Washington Post. Schools are not spreading COVID-19. This new data makes the case. And it goes into a lot of detail in this article, but I've included the data that they're going off of, which on both cases, both when they're looking at elementary schools and they're looking at high schools and uh, high school staff, so the teachers there as well, that these things, their rate of having coronavirus infections is lower than the overall community rate. Now, it was a little higher in some of the age demographics for some of the school staff, but we have no way of proving if they actually got it from school or they just got it in general. But the overall message and this is the takeaway that the Washington Post takes away from it correctly, is that schools are not a major vector for this virus. It's just not. And in fact, they have lower rates than the communities that they reside in. And so it's just astounding to me that even uber-liberal Washington Post, I mean, there's probably not a conservative that works there. Roy S. Johnson, who I'm sure would take that as a reliable source, would see that even back in November when that data was published, we knew that schools just were not a dangerous place. And so the idea that you're going to send your kids back to school unmasked, yeah, it's really not a big deal. even uber-liberal liberal sites and media publications have put this data out there, Roy. You know, all you, you got to do is read your own lefty colleagues at the Washington Post and they'll tell you, you don't really have to worry about schools, masked or unmasked. These things are not vectors for the disease. Now, the most ridiculous thing he says in this entire article, and this is a treat, is a little bit later on, we'll go ahead and look at this one. That's why the deafening roar of parents still vehemently fighting mask mandates in schools is so perplexing, so disheartening, so infuriating. No parent would willfully throw their child into traffic, so why are so many blithingly willing to toss their kid into a space without the simplest protection against COVID-19, against especially its violent, contagious, bullying variant? Boy. You would think reading that this thing is airborne Ebola. Like if there's a chance that somebody catches a whiff of the air, another kid is breathed, That's it. hundred percent fatality rate. But schools again have been shown not to even cause cases, even though the left loves to just look at cases and look at case rates. And that's their gold standard of whether or not we should be worried or not, regardless of whether or not it's actually killing people or increasing hospitalizations or causing bigger uh more potent cases cases where people are getting more sick they ignore all that crap and they just look at cases because cases seems to be the only thing that they care about even though the others are actually much better measures of how effective we are doing against the coronavirus but even if you just look at cases that in and of itself destroys johnson's uh case right there but he talks about it as though cases or not, even though we're not seeing an increase in cases in schools, that once they get this thing, that it it could kill them. Yeah, so could the flu. We don't shut down schools for that. In fact, far more kids die from the flu every year than coronavirus. And here's the other question that I could ask. He's saying that you don't really love your kids unless you're in favor of mandatory mask mandates, Not, not masking your own kid, just a blanket across the state saying every kid has to wear a mask in school why not just mask your kid if they're over 12 why not just get the vaccine we have such a tendency to ignore personal responsibility in this day and age and it's so sad because there used to be something empowering about being able to make your own decisions and and protect yourself and now it's like people don't even like that option it's They want this community of agreement to where it's not enough for them to believe something and for them to take action on it. They want everybody else to go along with it because misery loves company. Why don't you just mask your own dang kid, tell him not to take his mask off, and leave mine alone? And again, I say this as someone that doesn't have kids. I'm just saying it from that perspective. But the thing that was so ridiculous about that, equating sending your kid into a school without a mask being the equivalent of throwing them into traffic yeah those are those are the same thing first of all there's an obvious difference in negligence versus malice right like we understand that there would be a, a pretty big difference in just negligence in other words being negligent in your duty to prevent you know attach a preventative measure to your kid again i don't think the masks work i think the data shows that over and over again but assuming that it does There is a huge difference in failing to take a precaution and actively trying to harm somebody. Those are two completely different things. So just on its surface, if you knew nothing about coronavirus, you knew nothing about the risk that it actually poses, it's a completely incorrect comparison just off that by itself. So logically, we've already destroyed Johnson's argument. But let's introduce that other element and pretend that that is not true for just a second to break it down another way the risk is nowhere even close to the same. Now, granted, there's not really a statistic anywhere for the risk of throwing your child into traffic, but I imagine it's high, and that's the reason that Johnson is making that case. And so let's do some comparison here to that versus um, what Johnson is talking about here. If I can go ahead and get it pulled up. Let's look at some stats. So some Alabama coronavirus stats. Children in Alabama, that would be approximately 1.1 million. It's a little less than that, but I rounded up because it was very close. It was like Um, 1.089 or something like that. Deaths from COVID-19 ages 0 to 18. Four. Not 400. Not 4,000. Not 400,000. Four. In the entire state for the past... 16, 18 months, however long ago January of 2020 was. That means their odds of death are 0.00036 percent or 1 in 277,777. That is astronomically low. It doesn't even register as a risk because of how tiny that number is. I mean, it's just ridiculous how much of a non-threat this is to people that would be school age. Oh, and if that wasn't good enough for you, let's go ahead and look at this one. This is from the CDC, which Roy Johnson loves so much. Now, I want you to look there. This breaks down the deaths in the state of Alabama by age groups. Zero to, or one to four years, zero, five to 14 years, Also zero. So if you're under 18, there are only four people, which means that your risk is one in 277,777, which is insanely low. But if you're under the age of 14, we've literally not had a person die in the state of Alabama because of this. Now that doesn't mean it's impossible, but what it does mean is it's so rare that even after three spikes now, because we're in the third one, three spikes well over a year, and 1.1 million people in Alabama under the age of 18, and we haven't had one person under 14 die from this, which, I mean, I'm super grateful for, but doesn't that blow a massive hole in Roy Johnson's argument that if you're under the age of 14, we're making them wear a mask for something that literally not one single child in the entire state has died from? That's insanity. And what's even more insane is he's equating something that's that low risk where the the risk for if you're under the age of 14 is literally zero that he's saying that that is exactly the same risk as you throwing your child into traffic. This guy's an absolute moron. I don't know how else to put it. I'm just dumbfounded by the level of stupidity in that. I You know what? I'm almost ashamed of myself for not putting this in the Daily Dose of Stupid, how insanely dumb that is. I might release this later as a Daily Dose of Stupid segment. But yeah, sure. Let's go with this line that Roy Johnson has that throwing your child into traffic or putting them in a school when there's a virus running loose that has killed not one kid under 14. That's exactly the same thing as throwing your kid in front of a moving car. Yep. Same thing. And you're a horrible, terrible person. You're a bad parent. If you're willing to do that to them, this guy's absolutely insane. Look, what this all boils down to, everything we have been talking about in the show thus far, I can boil it down into one point. They are terrified that you're not terrified. That's really all it is. They are scared that they are now seeing people out, returning to normal, and not doing the things that they want them to do. Now, why is that? Why would they want people to be terrified? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. I think the more common one, and for people that are not like super involved in it, like Roy Johnson and Kyle Whitmire and politicians and and people that are leading on this, people that, you know, just your average Democrat that is kind of freaked out that nobody else is, is, when they they look around and see people not wearing the mask, they're scared. And the fact that you are not scared scares them. Like they think your level of terror should be at the same level as their level of terror. But the other side of that, the people that actually are in the know that actually have access to this information and have looked at it and just disregard it or either just don't do their own homework, the reason that they're scared that you're not scared has nothing to do with their own level of terror. I mean, that's why you have people like Governor Gavin Newsom just eating lunch in French laundry loudly with friends. This is before the vaccine happened. Uh, breaking literally every rule in the book when it came to whether, you know, what they're allowed to do, breaking his own rules because they're not afraid of it. Uh, Same thing with AOC over the weekend tweeting out something about that and and being caught, you know, maskless, the mayor of of D.C., Muriel Bowser at an indoor reception even after she had banned indoor uh, gatherings, big gatherings of any kind, that kind of thing. It's because they're not really afraid of it. Now, the random person that's bought into the panic porn and really thinks that this virus is airborne Ebola, they're scared that you're not scared because they think that your lack of fear endangers them. The people at the top of this thing, they don't. They, they know it's a sham. They know it's – I mean, not that the virus is a sham, but the, the, the panic is so overblown and the threat level is a sham and it's all for show. They understand that part of it. The reason that they're scared that you're not scared is because they know your fear justifies their power. People that are afraid are easy to control. People that are terrified of something want a big person from the government to come in and solve their problems. And they have had a much easier time doing this. And if you think, well, those are just the liberals or the people that bought into this. uh, I want you to think about this. Didn't they tell us that we couldn't go to church for several months this year, even in Ruby Red, Alabama? You're more susceptible to it than you think. And I say this as somebody that obviously was never in favor of shutting down churches, but bought into it more than I thought I would. And so think about that. People that are afraid are easier to control. And that's exactly what they want. And that's why they're afraid that you are no longer afraid and you shouldn't be. All right, we've got a great interview coming up with Dean O'Dell who is running for governor in the state of Alabama and also with Mike Murphy, the general manager of the biscuit? So stay tuned for that. We'll be back in just a second on Tactics.
1: Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you wanna hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio.
0: And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you guys so much for being with us here on the program. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to like and subscribe and click that little notification bell. That helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. So thank you for doing your part on that. My next guest on the program is one we've never had before, but he is running for governor for the state of Alabama. So we welcome, for the first time to the program, Mr. Dean O'Dell, Am I saying that right? You're Dean saying,
2: you are saying it correctly, which very few do, but uh, you did a good job there, but thanks for having me.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for uh, being generous with your time and wanting to speak to our audience. And, and I appreciate that you are you know, reaching out and, and this is an audience that's important to you because we've not always had that kind of luck. <laughs> uh with governor candidates in the last primary we interviewed three governor candidates except for one and i'll leave it up to your imagination which one declined oh yes uh but anyway let's actually get on to the subject of you so uh if you would just kind of introduce yourself because i'm guessing even some of my audience probably have not heard of you or don't know a whole lot about your background so if you would just kind of give us a brief introduction to uh you know kind of the journey that led you here
2: okay okay well, of course I am an Alabamian. I grew up here. I grew up in Opelika, Auburn area. I went to Opelika High School, of course, and then left there and went to uh, Troy State for a year before I answered the call to the ministry. And of course that leads into the fact that I am a pastor. I've been a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, for 34 years. I answered the call to ministry when I was 19 years old. So I've been doing that in in different ways over the last 34 years. I've been a youth pastor, a singles minister. and Big churches. I've been in small churches. I've uh, been a senior pastor, church planter. I've uh, been uh, to Nigeria twice, to mm. the Middle East to preach, to the island of Mauritius out in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Uh, I've authored four books. Um, pastoring the church I'm pastoring now in Opelika. Got to come back home after being in Washington, D.C. and uh, came home and planted a church. So it's a non-denominational church called Fire and Grace Church in Opelika. Uh, we've been there since two thousand nine. Started a ministry school there in twenty eighteen, and things are just going great. Church is growing. I think we're about to have to move out of our current building, but uh, that's a good problem to have. Sure. But uh, but things are going well, and you know, just uh, felt like though it was time. I felt uh, really from the Lord. I felt it was His leading to run for governor, especially after. I saw how the coronavirus response was handled by our current governor, Kay Ivey, mm-hmm. and some of our other leaders and just a lot of other things. But uh, anyway, it's uh, I'm now running for governor of Alabama uh, and still pastoring and plan to keep on pastoring.
0: Well, I got to tell you, this always makes my audience nervous because they know that I'm also a minister. And when you get two ministers talking, I mean, there, there may not be a force that can make this interview in. We, we may have to have a potluck just so that we'll stop talking. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, right. um. But no, that that's an interesting background there. And I've wanted to ask since you brought up K. Ivey, I was actually going to to leave off on her for at least a little bit longer in the interview. But since you brought her up, uh, I just think this is a fascinating thing to think about because K. Ivey is, by some polls, uh, it's always she's always close to the top, but by some polls, she is the most popular governor, has the highest approval rating of any governor in the United States of America, and she's in a red state she's a republican she has extremely high name recognition she's a very difficult opponent to beat so i guess my question is why now why was this the time you felt the need to step up
2: well i mean number one i think uh you gotta as a christian first and foremost you try to follow god's will for you you know you have to Mm -hmm. pray and seek him and know what he wants you to do so i would say number one i feel that it's definitely His will for me to do this now, regardless of the outcome, to, to be a voice on certain things. But one of the main reasons that I decided to run, besides feeling it was God's will for me,
1: mm.
2: was because, uh, you know, when I saw KIV, how she handled the coronavirus response, and I have to set it up like this and, and give a little background because you know, as a pastor, you know, my job is to protect the, the flock God has given me. And that means not just from uh, false doctrines or, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing when it comes to theology or in, in church world, but also what's going on in the world. We should know what's going on and try to, you know, give our church guidance on those things. So I'm a researcher. I dig into things. I look outside the box. I don't get my news just from the mainstream media. I, I dig and uh, try to find the truth, because we're, we're being lied to about a lot of things, even mm-hmm. through the, the mainstream media. So when I began to find out in late February of 2020 and into March that there was a safe and effective treatment that top doctors in the world, like Dr. Didier Raoult of France and Dr. Peter McCullough of Texas A&M, Baylor University Medical Center, and some others, Dr. Uh, Todoro of Columbia University, Uh, Dr. Fareed, a Harvard graduate, Dr. Harvey Reich, a Yale epidemiologist. When I began to find out from them that hydroxychloroquine, zinc, azithromycin, and ivermectin and some other drugs that were cheap, safe, and effective were saving lives. I mean, they were seeing over 90% success rate in stopping COVID in its tracks, stopping hospitalizations, stopping deaths. And when I saw our governor and our state health director, uh and other other leaders not even mention that even though president trump made it known to everyone in the world in mid-march of 2020 mm-hmm. um and then you saw the attack of the liberal left wing of the you know, the democrats and then you saw cnn and the rest of them pile on and even a fake study came out and they put it out in the lancet and when finally people asked where the data was that they found out that the there was no data so that Lancet had to pull the article that that was trying to say hydroxychloroquine was dangerous. You know, going to Africa twice, I've used uh, hydroxychloroquine, you know, for months at a time and never had any problems. So anyway, we just find out that this was politicized, but when our so-called Republican and conservative governor didn't even mention it, didn't even push that when people were dying, we, you know, uh, I, I don't, trust the vaccine. I don't like the vaccines that we have now, but this was before we had a vaccine and people were dying. Uh, A friend of mine was about to die in the hospital um, and he was the vice chair of the Alabama Republican Party just a few years ago. And he was going to die and the hospital was going to let him die. Uh, He had to walk out after three days of no treatment. And uh, he's a pastor as well now. And we got him hydroxychloroquine and zinc and uh, azithromycin, the protocol, and he got better immediately. Um, so I just saw where, you know, it was just unacceptable to me to have a leader that either, whether it was ignorance or whether it was, uh, politics, uh, not push something that was saving lives, not pushing the hydroxychloroquine and, 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 and even touting and bringing forth these top doctors across the world that were talking about this. So to me, people died that didn't have to, and, you know, Dr. Mm -hmm. Harvey Rice said that in the Newsweek article. Uh, people are dying and they don't have to. We have hydroxychloroquine, it works. And this is a Yale doctor. And so I just found that the the bad leadership we had here let people die. And to me, uh, that was enough. Just enough was enough.
0: Well, I've I've been critical of Kay response to this on a number of, of different levels, but I am just, you know, asking for your opinion on this. Um, do you really think that a governor, you know, even voicing support for some of the treatments that you're talking about would have made a difference. I mean, if the medical community in the hospitals is kind of locked into this idea that they're not working and they're following that, would the governor advocating for it have made a difference anyway, I'm just asking?
2: I think it would have made a difference with the public. For instance, um, when Trump made it public on that press conference, I think it was like March 18th or 19th of 2020. Yeah, very early on. Yeah. Um, There was a there's a story out there of uh, a Michigan state representative, Kate Whitsitt, who, uh, you know, Democrat, right? Not a Mm -hmm. Republican, not a conservative at all. Um, She had a colleague die of COVID early on. She got it. She was getting in bad shape. Her lungs were filling up. Uh, She knew she was in trouble and she was in the hospital in Michigan. And of course, their governor was discouraging the use of hydroxychloroquine. So her Mm -hmm. doctor didn't want to give it to her. But she kept she heard Trump talk about it on that press conference. She pushed her doctor to give it to her. And sure enough, the moment she started taking it, it only takes hours. I myself have had a bad case of COVID. And I know what happens when you start taking hydroxy within just a few hours, your lungs start to feel better, lighten up. It starts, you get better within five days, you're you're fine. It's over. You're you're good. And mm-hmm. she credited. Tr- President Trump for saving her life even went to the White House. I mean, and got in trouble with her Democrats in her in Michigan in their state house. I mean, she got in big trouble. But she said, you know what? Had if Trump hadn't talked about it, I would probably be dead. And I just think that it's the responsibility of a leader, especially if you're in a pandemic and people are dying. Um, it's your responsibility, regardless of what any doctors or officials say. It's your responsibility to tell the public, hey, there is something out there that might could save your life and we're gonna gonna try to get it for you. We're gonna do everything we can. And so I just think, uh, again, a governor's greatest power, I think, is their bully pulpit, their ability to uh, call a press conference and have all the TV stations there and say, look, this is what I think you need to do. This is what I think is the best course of action. Whether people follow it or not, it's their choice. But I just think uh, it's the responsibility of leadership.
0: Well, speaking of leadership, uh, one of the things that I noticed you have talked about quite a bit is corruption in the state. And unfortunately, our state has a history of that. It's something that we're very well aware of, unfortunately. And so. Uh, What do you think you could do as governor to try to weed that out? Because it is something that is a legitimate problem in the state of Alabama. Well,
2: I think one of the the very simple and basic things we could do in Alabama to stop a lot of the political corruption, because we know political corruption comes from people, again, who have either no morals or weak morals, but they also, it's about money. Money corrupts them. And one of the biggest problems is these PACs that can give these unlimited amounts to these, uh, these candidates, and they come in and they pretty much buy the candidate they want with their donations, with their PAC donations, their multi-PAC donations. I mean, we found out, I didn't even know this, this was reported by the Alabama Political Reporter that there were five or six PACs, a group of them, mm-hmm. last time in 2018, that they found out that George Soros was giving money to these PACs. These PACs gave money to both Walt Maddox and Kay Ivey in the last election. Um, Why would George Soros be giving money to a Republican? Uh, We know why he gives to Democrats. But that just shows that there's too much outside influence. There's too much, um, you know, lobbyists and things like that. So I think if we could uh, restrict and outlaw some of these PACs, we could see things cleaned up a bit. And then, of course, just... From the top down, you just have to have leadership. When you find corruption, you have to get rid of it. You have to fire people. I'll use this example. Um, you know, the prison system is a wreck. You know, we're in big trouble with uh, our justice department and everything else because of the conditions in our prison system. Uh, governors have been kicking this can down the road, but I, I just stand in amazement because I think it was Governor Bentley, if I remember correctly, that hired this guy named Jeff Dunn to run our prisons. Now. He might be a good guy. He might have gifts and talents, but he never run a prison before. And the prison system has been run into the ground. It's been mismanaged. It's full of corruption. Uh, One of the first things you do, the responsibility of a governor, a leader, fire the guy who's in charge, who's run this thing into the ground for years and years and years, and find somebody who's actually run a prison and run it correctly. Um, those kind of things are just, to me, simple and obvious, or what should be obvious, and we can clean up some corruption in the state.
0: I, I want to go back to the, uh, the discussion about the PACs just for a second, because, um, of course, there's a Supreme Court case, Citizens United, that ruled that essentially, uh, when PACs or just individuals donate to any kind of candidate, uh, they count that donation as a form of free speech a form of expression is that something that you would be against or how how do you work around that with the policy you're talking about well i mean, mean you
2: just make it where individuals can give i mean make it where individuals can give money and so just across the board and that way everybody's still free to give what they want to give you just don't have these corporations coming in here and wanting something from the legislature or wanting something uh, to benefit them in a monetary way or their industry and being able to give, you know, unlimited. You know, right now, PACs and individuals can give to gubernatorial campaigns or any statewide campaign. There's no limit in Alabama, no limit. So to me, that's, uh, you know, if you can get these big corporate uh, PACs and these big lobbyists to donate to you, you really um, have an advantage over the person that doesn't have these corporate connections and these lobbyist connections. I just think it would even the playing field out and everybody would be equal. You could just say, hey, individuals can give, here's the limit, put a limit on it. And, you know, there's a limit on federal elections, what you can give to a presidential campaign. Right, so, that's true. Um, you know, I think it would, it would cut down, you're never gonna get rid of political corruption when it comes to money, mm-hmm. but it would cut it down. And I don't think it would violate anybody's free speech to go, Hey, um, don't do this through your company, you as an individual, and here's the limit.
0: Well, I personally as a libertarian, I, I tend to disagree with you on that, but it's an interesting idea and, and we'll go ahead and, and move on to something else. Cause I don't want to spend all our time just on that. Um, one thing that I noticed that, uh, you talked about a lot, Is the issue of life. And in fact, the way that I found out about you was I met some friends that were, uh, supporters of yours that were actually at a planned Parenthood or not a planned parenthood, a a abortion clinic that told me about you and told me that you were, uh, an extremely pro-life candidate. And so if you could just kind of speak to that a little bit, because that's, that's arguably the most important issue in the state of Alabama.
2: Absolutely. I've always been pro-life. Even when I wasn't really following Jesus the way I should, I just, I always have known that morally that abortion is wrong and Mm -hmm. and that it should not be legal it should not be uh you know it should not be something that our government uh pushes it shouldn't be definitely should not be something that we support with taxpayer money for sure Um, and you know that's again it's just i believe life begins at conception I believe, uh, you know, the book of Jeremiah, when he talks about that before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and uh, those things are very sacred, I believe, and life is sacred. And I believe, you know, just our Constitution, our, our Declaration of Independence, I mean, these things about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, I just, it's never right to kill someone and deprive someone of that. And of course, we found out through. Uh, you know ultrasounds and things like that. We, as yeah. technology has progressed, how uh, that is a little human being there, and uh, and they they flee from the the pain and the intrusion of an abortion, and mm-hmm. you know it's just uh, it's a terrible thing. My wife, also when when we met, she was working for a, a Christian pregnancy resource center that was, you know, she was the CEO. She was working to uh, try to keep ladies from having abortions and they had an ultrasound they had a nurse come in and would do ultrasounds and it was amazing that how many uh, ladies once they saw the uh, the baby in there that they were thinking about abortion they would change their mind so uh, I just think it's just a moral issue and you know I know there are people out there who think well you you know the state shouldn't be involved in moral issues but we all are all the time I mean we, we stop murderers we you know, prosecute a murder and incarcerate them. We do that with rapists and thieves and everything else. Um, so we're involved in enforcing right and wrong.
0: Yeah, and, well, I mean, that's you know, that's always been a dumb argument to me because the thing is, you can say it has to be more than just morally wrong to justify the state getting involved. Totally understand that argument, but you can't just say, because it is a moral issue, the state cannot get involved. That right. doesn't make any sense because, right. like you said, we, we do that all the time. Right. Um, but, but on that um I I agree with everything you just said and I mean the the proof has just gotten as science has advanced more and more compelling that what we are talking about in the womb is what we've known all along if you're a Bible believing person that life inside the womb is indeed human life but I just want to ask because in the state technically abortion is illegal in the state of Alabama and Kay Ivey did sign that bill into law what more could you do as a governor uh, as far as the issue of life.
2: Oh yeah. Now I've, I've stated out on the campaign trail that Alabama has done very well in pursuing that issue. I mean, with, that's mm-hmm. a, that's been a big issue in this state and it's been fought hard and, uh, there's been many victories in that. And I'm, I'm glad Kay Ivey signed that. I, I mean, that's a big thing. I know there's a war in the courts about it, but, uh, mm-hmm. that's always going to happen, but I believe Alabama's done the right thing and, and truly. The only thing you could do the next step is if the courts rule against, you know, our, our law here about abortion, then you have to decide, do you want to resist further and take it to the next level and even, even go through that battle of, you know, having them take back federal money and just saying, we're not enforcing, we're going to enforce our laws and, you know, just stand on the 10th amendment that this is our state's decision. And that's where I would probably push down that road a little further. Uh, you know, you'd have to take it one day at a time and see how, how much the federal government would decide to fight back and how much we'd have to fight back. But, um, you know, I'm for enforcing our law as we choose it in the state, the 10th amendment. So,
0: and, and that was the standard for years before Roe v Wade, that was the standard is that it's a state issue. So, right. Um, but, but yeah, uh, what would that resistance look like? I mean, are, are we going to, and, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, right, I'm right. genuinely asking, like, does does that mean that we dare the Fed to come and enforce it? Like, how does that, what, what does that mean? Well, look right,
2: like? we would just, you know, take a stand against it and say, that's not gonna happen here, it's gonna be illegal, shut up. Shut down the abortion clinics, and say, stand on the 10th Amendment, and see what the Feds mm-hmm. do. And if they wanna take it up a notch, then, You know, we'd have to be consulting our lawyers and, and seeing what would be those next steps.
0: Well, I, I said on the air probably two or three months ago when I was doing a different segment connected to that, I said, if, if you want to get my vote as a politician, then you need to say, we will stand against the federal government and dare them to come down and try to enforce Roe v. Wade. And I mean, I'm just saying, I'm not, you know, declaring my support for you right (laughs) now, but You're getting dangerously close to getting my vote, is all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, and I feel the (laughs) same way,
2: and I'll say this, I feel the same way about the Second Amendment. I mean, I see the abortion issue as the right to life, Mm -hmm. and that I see as an uh, inalienable right that we have from God, as the same as our other rights of free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble, and the freedom to bear arms, and, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment about our protection that, that, you know, we from you know, not being searched without a warrant and probable cause and, and to be secure in our persons and all that. So I'm, I'm just real big about our freedom. That's why the whole motto of my campaign is keep Alabama free because I've just seen this gradual erosion of these rights that come from God. They don't come from man. They don't come from government. They're first from God. Governments are instituted to protect those rights. When they become destructive of those rights, then it's our job to alter or abolish that government. That's what the declaration of independent states. And that's what, that's our natural law there. And we've drifted America's drifted far from that.
0: You know, I have always said that the reason that because people, you know, sort of look down on you for being a single issue voter when it comes to the right to life. But I've always said the reason that that's the way that I am is not just because of abortion, but because if I can't trust you with the most fundamental of all rights, the right to life, I can't trust you with to protect any of my other rights because every other right is contingent upon that right. Exactly. Um, and, and, and that's the way I've always seen it.
2: And I agree hundred percent. It shows, I guess the foundation or your your how, how you're going to lead. If, if you can't respect that, if you don't honor that, if you don't have, if you don't have that conscience there, how are you gonna make other decisions? I mean, what, what's, your, what's your basis? What's your rudder for making those decisions? Right,
0: at some point you have to have a North Star. And if it's not that, it's something else. And I don't want somebody with something else as the North right. Star handling those issues. Right. So what would you say is the most important issue facing the state of Alabama right now?
2: The most important issue to me, and and as we see this uh, coronavirus uh, Delta variant and some of these other things happen, they're talking about uh, mask mandates again. They're talking about, uh, you know, the forcing and coercion of the vaccine Um, and some of these other issues. To me, these are freedom issues, and I think that we're beginning to see just the erosion of freedom. Um, our First Amendment rights, again, our Fourth Amendment rights when it comes to the vaccine to be secure in our persons. Uh, so I, I see it as a freedom issue when it comes to uh, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble. I mean, when when K-I-V shut down businesses and churches and schools just by decree, um, I was very upset because here I'm a pastor of a church. you telling me that we can't assemble because there's a virus out here that has a 99% recovery rate. Um, And our church never shut down. We defied that order completely because uh, we have a higher law. The Bible is very clear about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Right. Hebrews. Right. The the First Amendment says we have the right to peaceably assemble. And the moment you start interfering with that, you're trampling on our First Amendment rights. And I was uh, very upset about that. So to me, a big part of this is trying to maintain our liberties and our freedoms and being a leader, that w- if there is a crisis, the first thing a leader should look to is okay, how do I deal with this and not violate the constitutional rights of my citizens? And um, I see that coming with you know Joe Biden and his administration's looking at coming after even handguns. At first, the talk was about oh, we're right. just going to come after your assault rifles. Uh, now the talk is oh, we're going to come after even your nine millimeter pistols. I mean. This is getting serious. So there's just going to have to be a leader that's willing to, if need be, stand against and even if it comes to it, order the National Guard out, the Alabama National Guard, to stop the federal government from doing, uh, violating our Bill of Rights here. And you know, Alabama's motto: We dare defend our rights. I'm, I'm, I, I plan on doing that.
0: Well, I appreciate that because I've seen a a lack of willingness to do that for pretty much my entire life. I'm 32. And so from the people of Alabama, I've I've seen very little uh, gumption to to do that, but When it comes to the issues that you're talking about, first of all, I I do think it's interesting that I think the average person is just kind of ignorant on that because when they hear we're going to get rid of semi-automatic weapons, they think, oh, the big scary machine guns, right? No, just about every gun that is sold now, with the exception of maybe your pump actions, are semi-automatic. But uh, even more importantly, I, I think it goes back to the idea that you're talking about, about liberty just not being something I think that is held as terribly important to the constituents or to the politicians, because they seem to think, well, an emergency justifies me doing whatever I need to do to be able to handle it. But the, I mean, we have an Alabama constitution and, and we have things that are enshrined and if your principles go out the window, the second you're in a difficult situation or you're in a or you're in an emergency. What was the point of having principles? It's easy to have principles when there's not an emergency. Right. And so I think that that's, that's the big issue.
2: Yeah, I talk about that. There's a court case, and I can't remember it now, but it's on, it's on my website. In the I have a First Amendment article I wrote about all this. Mm-hmm. But there's a court case that states plainly that our rights cannot be violated in time of war or any time of crisis. That our First Amendment, Second Amendment, our, you know our Bill of Rights those rights listed there cannot be violated in any crisis. And so we just, as leaders, you got to first put that first and foremost in your mind that, uh, you know, I'm not going to take away somebody's right to make a living. I'm not going to take away their right to go to church. I'm not going to take away their right of free speech. I'm not going to, you know, try to force them, uh, to take something, a medical procedure they don't want, uh, you know, I'm not going to force those. The government's place is not to force these things upon people. It's to guard their freedom. That's really the difference. We've, we've got two philosophies of government. One, we're going to control you and force you to do whatever we want you to do. And the other one is I must guard your liberty and try to protect you at the same time. But first and foremost, guard your liberties.
0: Well, I think that it comes down to a, a point of which one is more important. Because that seems to be the issue, at least with a lot of the, the politicians that I speak to on those issues, is they'll say, yes, liberty an, an important idea, an important thing to protect, but this thing came up that we have to do. Okay, well, that communicates to me that you are more concerned with security than liberty. right? And, and I want security. I want people to be safe from the virus or any other threat that would come here, but I do think liberty is more important. And if I have to pick between one or the other, I'm going to choose liberty.
2: Well, and that's what I've been saying out on the campaign trail. It's like Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And I said, when if Americans, especially Alabamians, have become so weak that we fear a virus, again, with a 99% recovery rate, we fear a virus enough to give up our liberty. And that's not the American way. That's not the American spirit. That's just not how we, we became a great nation. We can't we became a great nation with people willing to lay down their lives, lose their lives, suffer, go through whatever was necessary to to have freedom and to maintain it. And there's been a lot of people suffer and give their lives so that we can be free. And, you know, I'm just not going to let my life be shut down because of a, I believe, a biological attack from China. I'm just not going to do it. And, uh, and especially when we, you know, maybe the first two weeks we were a little uncertain of what it was and what was going on and how bad it was going to be. And, you know, could it be treated? But once we found out that there were safe and effective treatments, and then you see the, I would say the socialist Democrats, the left wing, the, the, the media, the crazy liberal media, try to shut that down. All it was telling me was they didn't want there to be a treatment because they wanted to, to increase this draconian control over everybody. And it became very obvious that it wasn't about stopping the virus. It was about controlling and taking away freedom. And uh, that's why they tried to bury the truth about these safe and effective treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So, um, again, once you know the truth about something, uh, and you know the motives behind these people, it's, it was just unacceptable. We just had to take a stand. And and, I, and a lot of people, I will say this, a lot of people in this state, um, you know, in 2018, K.I.V. was probably unbeatable. And a lot of people think she's unbeatable now, but she's not. They don't even have a concept of how upset your everyday Alabamian is across this state. Uh, not their little elite, you know, political palace and establishment that they run around in. I'm talking about the people. I go to these meetings all over the state and it's over 90% of the people like, I am not voting for her again. She did not respect our freedom when it came to this virus. She didn't tell the truth. I mean, they're upset. They're upset about the mask mandate because the science is not there on the mask and everybody knows it. And, and they know that the treatments were pushed aside. Scott Harris, our state health director, he said in a press conference, there's no uh, treatments for coronavirus, uh, for COVID-19. And I'm sitting there going, he's a liar. or he either, either he's ignorant or he's a liar. And those two, it's just not acceptable. And that's another thing that's got to change. Well, if you want to get yeah.
0: technical, the MRA vaccines are treatments. They're technically not vaccines if you want to get down to the medical definition of them. And right. so even, even if you we're ignoring hydroxychloroquine or or ivermectin or any of the other therapeutics we've developed for it technically those are therapeutics and so he's wrong even then right exactly uh but anyway you know i have really just been so disgusted at this whole thing and i think that you're right that uh i i think that kiv is going to be near unbeatable even this time the recent polls have shown that she has wild popularity but We have seen chinks in the armor. We have seen uh, people, and I I tell you this, Kay is going to be tough to beat no matter what. And I would say that to you or anybody else that was thinking about running against her. We had uh, three very conservative candidates that lost to her in the last primary. But if she keeps going on rants on national TV, blaming the citizens of Alabama for the virus and trying to assuage guilt and any kind of blame from the media on her, if she's willing to throw the people of Alabama under the bus to basically save her own skin and make herself look better. If she keeps doing that, then she will be beatable.
2: Oh yeah. And I'll tell you right now that day she did that, my phone, my website blew up. And I haven't even started real like television, radio advertising and it blew up. Uh, people were looking who is running against her. She really stepped in it Mm -hmm. when she did that. Uh, because she, I guess she didn't think that, you know, at that point, Uh, The majority of our state had not been vaccinated because it's not because they didn't uh, want to or didn't have the opportunity, the the opportunities were there. They just, there's a bunch of people in Alabama that remember the Tuskegee experiment. They remember Mm -hmm. what the early CDC did to African-Americans in Tuskegee with the syphilis experiment. And everybody knows that, hey, in Alabama, we're not, we've always been, hey, I don't know about fully trusting the federal government about anything and uh so it's not about
0: it's my default position
2: right (laughs) Right, exactly and and they think that you know they think uh you know the other outside the world and she she kind of hey joined with the world like oh what are you guys a bunch of stupid hicks you don't understand you need to get vaccinated
0: oh i I happen to know from an insider that i will not reveal uh, the, the person that she was most in communication with on getting advice for the coronavirus besides Scott Harris was Deborah Burks. Oh, yeah. And that explains a lot of her, per, a lot of her policy uh, decisions on that. Right. Um, yeah, but, but absolutely. And when it comes to Kay, I, I, I will say this about that moment with Kay Ivey. We actually played that clip earlier on the show for those of you that may have been watching. If she loses this election... And I still think it's going to be tough, but if she loses this election, this will be her George HW Bush read my lips, no new taxes moment. Everyone right. will look back to that interview and that will be the moment she lost the election.
2: Oh yeah. I, I looked at it as uh, Hillary's moment when she called uh, all Trump supporters and conservatives deplorables, right?
0: The basket of deplorables yeah, that, on.
2: that right there was like, oh, the beginning of the, her decline mm-hmm. and you know, none of the polls showed it though. Uh, all the polls with Trump and Hillary. I went back and looked all of the states that Trump won, especially in the in the Rust Belt there, all of them. He was behind by double digits in the polls. And yet he won in you know 2016. And but she shot herself in the foot with that, that that deplorables comment. And this one, you know, when she said it's time to blame the unvaccinated.
0: Right. And, it's the same
2: thing. And, and basically said that the unvaccinated were not regular folks. I was like, oh,
0: boy. Yeah, she yeah. just othered a large, a large portion of her constituency. Right.
2: And, and it's not like that, that people are just saying, oh, I just don't want the vaccine. It's people who are looking into mRNA technology. I mean, Dr. Robert Malone, the co-inventor right. of the mRNA technology, said two things. He said the vaccine, uh, the current mRNA vaccines are too dangerous, he said, and the government is not being transparent with us about the risk. I mean, when the guy who invented
0: it says that,
2: I mean, we're not looking at, you know, somebody in some dark corner of the internet with a conspiracy theory.
0: Right. This is not an (laughs) anti-vax guy. He invented the technology. right?
2: And he's saying, we don't know. And information is being held back, Um, you know, on the the VAERS, the vaccine injury reporting site. I mean, they they admit there's over 6,000 deaths. There's hundreds of thousands of injuries. And we're talking about people going blind, people having strokes, people being crippled, people being uh, basically paralyzed from the waist down, all kinds of things. We've had 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds having heart attacks, some dying right after the shot, two days after the shot. Um, So people have legitimate concerns, as they should. And, And especially like, okay, for instance, with me, i have a vaccine injury from my taking the vaccines that i took when i had to go to africa Mm -hmm. and i got an autoimmune disease from that and it it kicked in within a month of having those vaccines and and so i know about this i and Mm -hmm. and for me for instance if i was forced to have to get these vaccines it could do great damage to me because i already have this this condition this issue so there are people out there who go You know, I know my health. I know my family history. I know about these uh, injuries and deaths and problems with all the vaccines from AstraZeneca to Johnson & Johnson to Moderna and Pfizer. They're looking at this stuff and going, you know what? I'll take my risk with COVID. I'll take hydroxy and ivermectin and I'll just keep my health that way. Um, And that should be your choice. No one should be forced and that's why I was so disappointed this past legislative session when mm-hmm. Richie Horton's bill uh, to stop employers from discriminating against those who chose to be unvaccinated with this new vaccine technology. Uh, you know, that didn't even get out to be voted on. And to me, again, KIv didn't push that when it needed to be pushed. I mean, we know the Business Council of Alabama went against that as well. Um, but we're seeing now people having to, you know, choose between taking the vaccine that they don't want to take or losing their job. And this shouldn't be happening. And we're just seeing, again, that this is the loss of freedom in America. And it's somehow trickling itself down into Alabama, which should never happen. Alabama should be the freest state in the country.
0: Well, you know, I'm actually based on what you're saying. I think I'm more pro vaccine than you are, but even though I see the, the vaccines as a net good, I've not taken them. And the reason I haven't is because I'm at extremely low risk. And I've looked at the data about people in my age group, especially men, having complications, especially with their heart afterward. And the risk is very low, but it's still double my chance of dying from the virus if I'm unvaccinated. And so, um, you know, for somebody that's 60, 70 years old, it, st- it should still be their choice. But, you know, that should be left up to them. The thing is, when you give people freedom, they tend to make pretty good risk versus reward analyses and they choose something that's right for them. This cookie cutter approach of I'm going to mandate one solution for everybody. That's just tyranny wrapped up in the guise of protection. Right. Exactly.
2: And I agree with you. Look, I agree. People should be free if they want to take it. Take it. If you don't, you don't. Um, You know, but see, we're getting a lot of lies out there, even in the hmm. media. We're getting this push, like like Kay Ivey said. She said it's the cure, and you you know everybody needs to get it. Well, it's not a cure. We're finding out when the the, the Massachusetts outbreak that happened just a few, uh, maybe a week or two ago now.
0: Was that the Cape Cod incident right. we're talking about? Yeah,
2: seventy five percent of the people who tested positive for COVID nineteen were vaccinated. Seventy five percent. They're finding this in Israel. They're finding this in the UK. That the vast majority of people. Who are having covid have been vaccinated sacramento california said they're having the highest number of covid cases in the counties where they've had the highest vaccination rates so it's not working 100 percent and to sit there and go well oh you have to do this because that's going to be the cure it's not the case we're dealing with something that's a little different and to make these blanket statements is dangerous again all Americans should just do their research, look at both sides. You know, there's people arguing on two different sides. Listen to all the experts. But you know, mm-hmm. the experts that are, any of the experts that are cautionary or even a little bit anti the vaccine, they get censored on Facebook and YouTube mm-hmm. and these things. I, my whole YouTube channel, because I talk about these things, has been terminated. Last week, gone. I had ex- I've had
0: video scrubbed too.
2: Oh, these aren't just video scrubbed. My whole channel was shut down. I had 24,000 subscribers. I had that channel for 12 years and it's gone. I had millions of views gone because of this, Mm -hmm. just talking about this.
0: Well. Uh, if somebody, we need to go ahead and wrap it up, but if somebody has watched this video and likes what they hear, is interested in you as a candidate, or may want to help out your campaign and donate, what would be the best best way to do that?
2: Just go to DeanOdleForGovernor.com, and that's D-E-A-N, like the dean of a school, and Odle, O-D-L-E, DeanOdleForGovernor.com. And everything's on there, the articles, the issues page. We have the donate buttons. We have the volunteer buttons. Uh, when somebody volunteers and it comes to my phone mm-hmm. and I chat with them immediately when you volunteer. So, um, if you want to help us, jump in there, DeanOdleForGovernor.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and thank and you for having me. Your time. Yeah. Yeah. Always a pleasure to, uh, talk to some candidates and we certainly wish you the best. That is Dean Odell at DeanOdle.com. We're going to be back in just a second on Tactics.
1: Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio
0: and welcome back everybody thanks so much for being with us here on tactics where speech isn't violence tolerance isn't love and disagreement isn't hate and if you happen to be watching on youtube or one of the other online venues be sure to like and subscribe that always helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords my next guest is somebody who has been on the show quite a few times but we're always glad to welcome him back it is the general manager for the montgomery biscuits mr mike murphy thank you so much for being on the program
3: no, I appreciate the time, Caleb. How's everything going?
0: Everything's going well. You know, I have not had an interview with you all season. I've, I've got Chris Adams Wall, the voice of the Biscuits, on a couple of times, but I don't think I've had you on all season, and it's already August. So, how you been?
3: I'm uh, doing well, man. It's uh, it's been a busy summer, which is uh, very thankful for that. Obviously, coming off of a year where we didn't have biscuits baseball, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to say, "Hey, we're we're very busy right now," is definitely a good thing.
0: Yeah, and I imagine that you're a little busier than most because a lot of people probably don't realize this, but you've had to actually sort of pull double duty all season. Not only are you the general manager, you have also been the mic guy all season. So how's that experience been?
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's actually something uh, I've done as far as being the on-field FC did it for uh, quite a few years uh, with the previous team I worked for, the Richmond Flying Squirrels, uh, prior to coming down to Montgomery, and uh, yeah, at one point um, did it, you know, kind of filled in a few games here and there uh, since I've been here, but this year it's kind of become uh, my, my full-time game day position. Um, Really, at the beginning of the season, it started as a situation where there were so many uh, rules and regulations in place from a COVID standpoint for Major League Baseball that it uh, just made more sense for me to be a part of it. And uh, it's something that I have a lot of fun with and I enjoy doing. So, it, uh, it helps me stay a little bit more engaged in the game, helps me connect a little bit more with our fans and get to have some more conversations, um, you know, than uh, especially with the young fans. You know, a lot of our contests are, are little kids, so it, uh, it helps in a way of understanding. I mean, that's where we want to grow our fan bases with these, these young kids and understanding kind of what things they want to do uh, and what kind of things they actually pay attention to in the game. A lot of times they're not paying attention to the balls and strikes and outs. They're paying attention to, all the fun stuff that's going on. Where's the where's the dipping dos? Where's the cone ice? Uh, ice? Right. You know that kind of thing. So uh, it's definitely been a lot of fun to to be able to get back into that role this year.
0: Well, you know, I definitely do think that that's an important part of it. Is, as I have long said, one of the great things about a biscuits game is even though I'm a big baseball fan, you don't have to be a baseball fan to really have a good time at Riverwalk Stadium for the evening. And I think that uh, the job that you're doing there is the on-field MC. I mean that that really contributes to that sort of the goofy quirky things that happen between the innings and uh, it just really creates a fantastic family atmosphere.
3: Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that because that's something that we strive to do uh, you know every single day. like you said, you don't have to like baseball to come here and have a great time. You can mm-hmm. um, you know you can just look at it as a time to gather a group of friends together. If, if there's one person that likes baseball, great if there's none of your friends that like baseball you can come here and you know for example tomorrow nights are thirsty thursday but uh, we're doing a a craft beer tasting so if you're a craft beer enthusiast come to the ballpark it's going to be a lot of fun you know it's not it's not just okay hey here's nine innings of baseball Uh, you know if you have kids we have places for them to kind of run around and jump around in the playground and um, you know, kind of interact with some friends and, uh, you know, we want it to be a fun family environment, something that, uh, you know, what we always say is, you know, when we're coming up with our promotions, when we're coming up with our theme nights. Is there something that a kindergartner is going to love and is also something that their grandparents are going to uh, come here and have a great time. So that's what we strive to do for every single night.
0: Yeah. And I hope that that also has the side effect because I am a baseball guy. We've right. seen so many studies time and time again, that if you really want to make future baseball fans, you have to start young. It's it's very rare that somebody just becomes a baseball fan later in life. And so really giving these kids sort of a touch of baseball and, and really enjoying the American pastime, I think is a great way to expose new fans and hopefully create fans for the future of baseball.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, especially as, as strong as the youth organizations are here in you know the the river region. I mean, not just uh not just in Montgomery, but you know, there's so many different travel teams and youth organizations where baseball is so huge. You know, partly because obviously the, the climate, you can play baseball, you know, ten ten to twelve months out of the year right. um here in Montgomery. So uh baseball participation is definitely high in our area. Um, so that's something we want to, you know, be able to play off of and say, okay, hey, come and watch you know, the next superstars that are coming through. Come and watch guys that are, you know, on their way to the big leagues, both that you know are for the Biscuits, uh, you know, players that are, are coming through in the Rays organization, or some of the other organizations that are coming in town. And, uh, and the other thing is, you don't have to be a Rays fan to be a Biscuits fan, and that that's that's something. Um, that, that's always fun. You know, we see a lot of people work, you know, especially whenever, you know, the team like Mississippi Braves are in town, mm-hmm. get a lot of fans coming through wearing their Braves hats and their Biscuits t-shirts. And that's okay with me, but, you know, I, I prefer that you're, you're cheering for the Rays <laughs> and sure. Biscuits. But, sure. you know, that's uh, it's all right. We want, like you said, we want to continue to grow the game. We want people to come out and have a great time.
0: Well, you know, that's the thing. You always do have at least a few away fans, and I'm, I'm sure some of them are just like family members of the team that travel with the team. But like last night, I saw quite a few people, even though the crowd wasn't huge last night because it was a Tuesday night, I saw a few people walking around in Cubs stuff. And so you have fans of the uh, minor league team that came out to see the Tennessee Smokies since they're the Cubs affiliate. And so you yeah. do have that, and it makes for an interesting experience.
3: Yeah, especially. I mean, obviously, a lot of our fan base comes from uh, you know the folks that are in Maxwell, so they're coming from all over the country. So you will have mm-hmm. you know the occasional Cubs fans that come through, or White Sox fans when Birmingham's in town. Right. Uh, we we haven't seen a ton of Angels fans, but of course, Rocket City has, uh, hasn't made their way to Montgomery yet. Uh, we'll have to wait for twenty two for that one. So.
0: Yeah, I actually attended a Trash Pandas game in Huntsville playing the Biscuits. It was funny because I'm pretty sure I was the only Biscuits fan there, so I was like one guy (laughs) cheering and the biscuits did win that one so that was pretty cool Uh, yeah get to see the uh the on the road win so tell me mike what's coming up for promotions is there anything really big coming up uh in the near future
3: yeah absolutely obviously uh for the remainder of this week the the biscuits are home through sunday so uh every, every series that we have tuesday through sunday Uh, You know, we have our kind of day of the week promotion. So uh, our Wednesday night promotion is our our WOW Military Wednesday food and drink specials for um, your active duty and retired military members with military ID. Um, So just come to the concession stand, show your ID, be able to take advantage of of those food and drink specials courtesy uh, of WOW TV, phone and Internet. Um, We do have a doubleheader tonight. So in game one, the biscuits are actually going to be the away team. Game two uh, will be the home team, so two seven in the game, starting at four thirty this this evening. Uh, Already briefly mentioned, Thursday night is our our, or Thursday, Thursday in our T-shirt Thursdays. Tomorrow's T-shirt. It's our Hops and Hits jersey presented by Terrapin Brewing. Uh, so that's for the first 1,000 fans, 21 and up. Um, and we will have some craft beer tasting on the concourse. So I think we have nine different breweries that will be around sampling some craft beers, um, mostly IPAs as we're celebrating National IPA Day uh, mm-hmm. at the ballpark. Um, on Friday, uh, we ha- are celebrating uh, one of my favorite movies with uh, the tribute to Talladega Nights, the uh, the Ballad <laughs> of Ricky Bobby. So it's the 15th anniversary of that movie. Kind of hard to imagine, uh, but we have a pretty cool hat giveaway. It is a NASCAR themed biscuits hat uh, presented by the Air Force. Um, so it's a it's a really cool hat. That's for the first 500 fans of all ages. So you need to get get to the ballpark early for that one. Uh, and on that night, we're also going to be joined by our friends from Troy Athletics. Um, they're going to be out here. They'll have uh, T-Roy, the mascot, running around. I believe their new baseball coach is going to be here, uh, going to throw on a ceremonial first pitch. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. And then we're going to continue with the, the college theme, getting ready for college football season with our Titan Tiger night. Uh, that's always a fun night on uh, Saturday Um, the 7th sorry yeah Saturday the 7th with post game max
0: fireworks and and just a word of advice to somebody that has gone to the Auburn Alabama night many many times in fact there's very rarely been a year that I missed it uh you need to show up early because that one almost always sells out so definitely uh, get your tickets now on that one
3: yeah definitely a fun night at the ballpark where we kind of uh you know try to take the rivalry to every measure that we can. So it goes in between con in between any contests that we we're talking about, we'll have, mm-hmm. you know, one fan representing Alabama, one fan representing Auburn. And we'll try to keep a tally throughout the night of uh, you know, who's who's winning, who's leading. Uh but we have some some great guests joining us on that night. Uh, Brett Eddins, uh, former defensive end for Auburn, will be throwing a ceremonial first pitch. And then uh, from Alabama, former defensive back Antonio Langham uh, will be joining us. So uh, two great guys. Very thankful for them for joining us, uh, kind of throwing out their ceremonial first pitch and be able to interact with the crowd a little bit um, following that. And then Sunday is our Bark in the Park Sunday. So uh, a lot of a lot of cool stuff, a little something for everybody like we were talking about. Um, so uh, we're, we're excited about the rest of the homestand.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've got a lot to be excited about. That's an amazing variety. Anybody from somebody that's really into craft beer to Auburn, Alabama fans, which is, I think, every person in the state, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) And uh, and then, of course, if you're a dog lover, show up to the park on Sunday. My dad's actually brought his Australian Shepherd many times to bark in the park, and it's always a good time. So uh, lots to look forward to. Um, Well, I appreciate you taking the time to let the people of the city know. And I'm going to tell you this sort of personally, Mike. Uh, you know, because of my job here doing the political show, I talk to politicians all the time, and I talk to quite a few that live here in the city of Montgomery, that represent the, the state or the city of Montgomery in some way, and have talked about what a shot in the arm and what a boon the Montgomery Biscuits have been to this community because they can remember back when downtown was nothing but just business buildings and offices and was completely dead after about 6 p.m. And now there's life. Um, you've got the riverfront park, the Harriet too, uh, lots of little great restaurants and local places there with the alley. And I really do think that the biscuits were the catalyst that made all that possible and revitalized downtown. And so I hear from so many politicians that the Montgomery biscuits really started bringing downtown back to life at night. And and we appreciate the part that you guys have played in this community.
3: Yeah, no, that's, that's something, uh, obviously that was well before my time here, right. uh, for, for the, the, you know getting the ballpark uh created and that and you know for the the folks that were part of that process uh i can't thank them enough for uh you know their uh you know the design of this ballpark and and how it's been but that's something that's you know very much Uh, we want to be impactful in our community. And even if that's just, you know, creating a buzz around town and making it to where people want to come downtown and want to go and visit those restaurants and bars before and after our game, that's something that's very important to us if we want to keep people uh, flowing to downtown Montgomery.
0: Well, we certainly appreciate that. And I know you mentioned stadium design. Now, I'm telling you, Mike, you know, I'm biased, but I went to a Trash Pandas game in Huntsville, and they have a very nice stadium. It's it's very new. It's pristine. But I don't think it has the personality that Riverwalk does with the whole train yeah. car thing. And and what I love is you have the little stands that pop up that have all the specialty mm-hmm. food. The Trash Pandas, it's mostly just like your generic baseball concessions. One of the things I love about the biscuits is y'all got like the barbecue thing, the south of the border thing, the gourmet burger stand. Last night, I had a Koneka sausage dog which is something they don't have. And so there's just so much personality. And the thing that I like the most about it is those food stands are facing the field. So you can actually stand in line and still watch the baseball game. So, yeah, uh, and I, again, I know I'm biased, but I think Riverwalk is is probably out of all the minor league stadiums I've been to, and I've been to four or five now, uh, It's it's still the best one that I've been to.
3: Yeah, I I agree. I would put our stadium up against any in the country uh, just based on on the character that we have, um, because it is actually a historical building. I mean, a lot of times you say you, you get you get the opportunity to go to a historical ballpark uh, in, in a lot of places. That just means it's old and they're trying to wait for a new one to be built. Ours is actually protected by the Historical Society of the uh, the train shed, or train station that's on the um, you know, first base side. But it has all the modern fan amenities that you can uh, that you can never want. So I would definitely put Riverwalk Stadium up against any in the country.
0: Oh yeah, and uh, actually I had a little excitement last night. We had a home run actually hit a train, so that was pretty cool too. I think it went over
3: the train actually. It all was uh, pretty well struck. So
0: oh, I figured it hit the top of the car, but yeah, it may it may have. It was that was actually a, a really big home run, especially for a yeah. minor league. team. Team, but, I mean, that yeah. was that was fantastic. But, all right, well, thank you so much for taking some time to get caught up with us and looking forward to a lot of those promos that you talked about. I definitely want to go to Tide and Tiger Night on Saturday. So, uh, if you want to go to the ballpark, there's a decent chance that you're going to see me roaming around there. Now, that may be a deterrent from some for some of you. But <laughs> I hope that some of you would like to come up and say hello at a Biscuits game.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, check out biscuitsbaseball.com for all the information.
0: Grab your tickets right there. All right, we'll see you soon, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. That's Mike Murphy of the Montgomery Biscuits. He's the general manager and, at least for the time being, the on-field MC. So be sure to go to the Biscuits game and check him out doing all the cool events in between innings. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back in just a minute on Tactics.
1: Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio.
2: That was stupid.
1: I know it was stupid.
2: Really stupid.
1: Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs>
0: and for tonight's Daily Dose of Stupid this one is a weird one and fair warning fairly creepy so it comes from this woman named flora gill who is a british writer for gq style the sunday times and a radio host over there for uh, i believe it's times radio and she made an incredibly disgusting and dumb suggestion the other day via twitter where most disgusting and dumb suggestions come from it is is their typical origin point so we're going to go ahead and read that and fair warning this one is a little creepy so uh if you got little kids watching maybe don't have them watch this segment but here it is from gloria or sorry flora gill someone needs to create porn for children hear me out usually if you have to say hear me out it means that whatever you're about to say is really dumb but okay continue <clears throat> Young teens are already watching porn, but they're finding hardcore aggressive videos that give a terrible view of sex, and they need entry-level porn, a a softcore site where everyone asks for consent and no one gets choked, etc. How do you even respond to that? Like, somebody that thinks that little kids, young, young kids, teens should be watching porn. They just need to be watching the right porn. And they think that the problem with current porn is not that it's pornography, that it's degrading, any of that stuff. They think the problem is just the way and tone of the porn. If, if people were just asking for consent and nobody was getting choked, that porn would be perfectly acceptable. No, it wouldn't. It's bad. All of it. Period. Full stop. There needs no more description of that. It's all bad. Because it takes the most intimate act that a person can engage in with another human being and makes it into a spectacle. Therefore, it is bad no matter how it is presented. Even if everybody's super polite, even if everybody's nice, even if everybody can sense, it's still evil. And there's really no way around that. You can't I mean, is there some that's worse than others? Maybe, but it's all bad. And so th- this idea that we should be having kids just watch the correct porn or porn that is entry-level to them. There's several reasons why this is stupid. Of course, there's the, the moral ridiculousness of it. But the first thing that comes to mind when you're looking at something this dumb is that it's illegal. Now, I don't, really claim to be an expert on laws in the uk but i would assume it's the same over there i hope that it is but in the united states showing pornography to a kid or marketing pornography to a kid just like if you were to there's a reason that it's illegal to market cigarettes to children uh even if you're a legitimate cigarette company and even though cigarettes are legal in this country you can't market cigarettes to kids and the reason for that is because you're specifically trying to subvert and go around the law and hope that they're going to break the law and purchase your product. In the same way, you cannot market porn to children. This is a crime. In fact, I actually can't give the details because I want to protect names of, of people. And I'm sure once you hear the story, you'll understand that. But I was close with somebody who fostered a child because... Their parent had them watch them engage in a sex act. Didn't, you know, have them do anything sexually or or didn't do anything to them or touch them or anything like that, but they engaged in a sex act intentionally in front of the child. This is a crime. And showing them pornography is exactly the same thing. That is a crime. Not only is it contributing to the delinquency of a minor, but it is sexual assault. By the way, It still counts as uh, sexual harassment, even if this is a person that is over the age of 18. For example, uh, not only would it be a terrible idea for my career, but if I were to just walk around my workplace and show a random adult a piece of porn, even if it was just 10 seconds, that's sexual harassment unless they ask for it or they're okay with it. I thought this was something that we all understood, and since somebody that is under 18 legally is not capable of giving consent, that's what it means to be a minor when it comes to sex. You you lack the ability to consent, therefore any sex perpetrated against you is statutory rape. If you can't give consent, then it is impossible for you to show pornography to a kid and it not be sexual harassment, even if they want it, even if they like it. That's what that means. And so, just the first level of stupid is, well, you are you just recommended that people break the law in several different ways. <laughs> so that's the first one. The second... Uh, porn is escalatory by nature. It's a gateway. Very few people start out with the kind of hardcore n- pornography that she kind of alludes to in that tweet. The stuff where... You know, one person's choking the other. There's some kind of bondage or abuse or something in that. It's very rare that people start out at that level. Almost everyone actually does watch what she would refer to as entry-level porn first. They've they've done studies on this over and over again. We had Dr. Lou Butterfield who came down to talk to us about this. He was a guest on the show. You may remember that segment from, I want to say, back last year sometime. Um, He actually came in and talked to us about this. There's no such thing as safe porn because it's all a gateway. You can watch the, the porn where everybody's nice and consenting and everything to start out with. But the thing is, your body, after you have trained your brain to release the chemicals that it desires after acting out to pornography, it's going to need something more extreme the next time. It's kind of like, uh, I believe cocaine is the one that's like this. It's like cocaine. You, you start out and your first trip on cocaine is amazing and everyone after that isn't as good. And so they're constantly trying to increase the dosage, constantly trying to do things to make the next trip as good as the last one. But it has a, a, you, you sort of build up a little bit of a natural immunity to it. So the next trip isn't as good as the one before. And so you're constantly chasing a high. And that's exactly the way that porn is after a while. You will become unable because you need stuff that is so extreme to be able to get your fulfillment. And I know that this is an uncomfortable circumstance, but it it proves the point that I'm making here. Uh, There was even a person that the professor that that came in and spoke to us about this. He talked about this specifically. He said that there was one client that he had that was so addicted to porn that he could not – do stuff with his wife unless he was watching porn during the process because he had so desensitized himself to that he couldn't be stimulated again i know this is a very uncomfortable topic but I, I have to sort of soldier through this to get to my point that is exactly what is going to happen to kids and if you're starting out kids on this at a very young age then that just means that they're going to continue to look for more extreme and more extreme and more extreme porn the the older that they get in order to try to chase that high just like they were originally this thing is addictive like a drug in fact we, we were just talking to the the doctor that was talking to us about this that actually came with brain scans showing that the scan of somebody that is addicted to pornography is similar to the brain scan of somebody that's addicted to other extremely addictive and and high risk drugs cocaine being the one that was the closest associated with it and so this thing rewires your brain to think in a certain way that you will constantly do that and so starting kids on this very very young is a horrible idea because that gives them more time to build up that resistance and to continue to seek more extreme porn so let's just ignore the fact that i'm a minister of the gospel think that all porn is wrong and immoral Uh, let's let's Ignore that for a second and pretend that that is not the case. It would still be a bad idea because if what she's talking about there, the, the really bad porn, the extreme porn that includes, includes people being choked and that kind of thing, what the end result of that is going to be if you started marketing pornography to kids and started making it for kids is that more of that extreme porn is going to be produced because they get started younger and younger and then they need the more extreme version as they grow and mature. That's what is going to happen, and so even if you didn't accept the premise that all pornography was automatically bad like I do, even if you ignored that, this is only going to make the problem that she's talking about significantly worse. So even from her own perspective, it's an incredibly stupid suggestion, but I am noticing – it's real interesting here – this is a woman that just called for people to break laws that are supposed to protect children – from being exposed to objectionable material like pornography and the argument that she used for it was, well, they're going to do it anyway, so we need to give them the safe version. And again, I just showed you why that's an incredibly stupid thing to suggest, especially with pornography. But I mean, think about it with anything else. It would be like, well, we'll use drugs since we already talked about that one a little bit. We don't really want kids to smoke marijuana or cocaine or heroin. So let's just give them all cigarettes at like age 12. Because, I mean, they're going to do drugs and experiment with them anyway, so we might as well just give them the stuff. By the way, you may also notice that this exact same argument in another sexual realm happened a long time ago. Well, we know kids are going to be having sex anyway, and we need to quit teaching all of this abstinence stuff. We need to just give them condoms and tell them to have safe sex as opposed to just uh, telling them to abstain from sex until they're married. What happened with that? Well, here we are about 50, 60 years after that idea was originally introduced, the rate of STDs has skyrocketed. The rate of children born out of wedlock is extremely high in certain communities, especially the black community, sadly. I mean, they've completely destroyed the nuclear family in most of the black community, and that is a real travesty. But it's happened in other communities as well. And we're seeing extremely high rates of parents not born and and not growing up in two-parent households as a result of that idea. You cannot play with this stuff. It's like fire. You have to be extremely careful with it. And when you do bring it out, you have to be careful in the way that you use it. It, I mean, sexuality can be a a wonderful, comforting thing, but it can be very easily perverted. And because of that, you have to be extremely careful with how you use it and in what way it's going to be brought out because if it's not coupled with responsibility and that's been the left's crusade over the past several decades to try to decouple sex from responsibility and we've seen the results that it's had unless it's coupled with responsibility it's a lot like fire it can be very comforting and useful in certain circumstances and contexts but it can also burn stuff down and that's exactly what we've seen happen but you know that nobody is actually saying that we should cancel her that's super weird i mean the woman did just suggest that a whole bunch of people break the law and do something that is highly illegal and yet I, I don't see like a big move of me too people saying that we should cancel her or or kick her out or there's no calls from her boss to to get her fired from her radio show or her her articles in gq or style or any of those things not not really seeing any of that's strange little weird. Seems like it would be something that would happen to somebody on the right. Why is that? Because right now, the left is not really sure what to do with this. But it has a pedophilia problem. It does. And the reason is because they feel like it's just the next step after transgenderism. And, And by the way, they're right. I actually had a bet going with my father that they would not go to pedophilia next. See, after the whole trans thing started, he and I had a bet. I said it would be bestiality first. He said pedophilia. I got to say, it's looking more and more like dad was right. I'm, I'm going to lose that bet it seems because there has been an awful lot of evidence and I'm just going to go through a couple of them right now that the, the left is slowly working up towards because they've, they've been for sexualizing and destroying the innocence of children for a long time now, but now they're just moving straight into the, the straight up pedophile camp on this unfortunately for example there was the san francisco gay men's choir that got caught and you can go watch the video look it up uh they're singing a song about they're coming for your children and on this you know you say that we're going to corrupt your children and on this you're correct i mean they admit to it they want to take your children and then afterward they kind of walked it back like Oh no! It it was a joke. We were kidding. This was a parody, you know, like uh, the song "White Nerdy" or "Amish Paradise." That's what we were doing. It was just it was just all in good fun until you find out that the guy that wrote the song actually also wrote a musical that glorified pedophilia, and it was specifically centered around a practice that is practiced in some uh, Arab countries known as boy play, which is incredibly disgusting and i won't get into any details here but basically it's young boys having sex sex with adult men so yeah that's the guy that wrote that song I, i don't think he was kidding i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure that he wasn't uh you have other scenarios like i said i could go through all kinds of them we had the whole gay pride thing with blues clues i had a big segment on that that was one of my most watched segments of this year and then there's this other one which is really strange. Boston Review, which is an academic journal, or at least is supposed to be, which frankly ought to set up a red flag right away. Uh, Boston Review, who is supposed to be a forum for political issues and that kind of thing, they put up this article called Keep Pride Nude, and this is what they wrote in it. When parents or people ventriloquizing, uh, ventriloquizing parents oppose public indecency at pride on the grounds that it may upset children, the opposite is more likely the case their children might like it. And that upsets the parents, not the children. What is the presumptive harm if a child happens upon a guy sporting a chest harness or sees an adult's butt cheeks or even an adult's genitals or breast? So in other words, they're like, ah, what's the harm if a kid just sees a completely naked person? It's no big deal. Would such children feel necessarily violated or might the adults feel it be feeling violated on their behalf? Might the child be as likely to respond with curiosity? So here's the thing. On some level, they actually are correct. And I know that that is going to shock you to hear me say that, but remember, on some level, the devil is correct in just about every single verse where he speaks. You know, when he tells Eve, well, if you eat this, is you'll not surely die. Well, she did. She just didn't die like right that second. And so it was kind of... Uh, skating around the rules it wasn't you know really a lie in the most literal sense but it was a lie and this is exactly what is going on with this statement the element of truth here is that kids might actually like it and they might be curious and they might want to even engage in things like that because they enjoy it that's the point that's the reason that parents are against it you see, we have crafted this world and this paradigm and narrative, especially on the left, but really it's, it's crept into the right as well, where the only morality with sex is consent. As long as you consent, you're fine. As long as everybody consents, then there's nothing icky about it, nothing immoral. Any sex, as long as it's consensual, no matter how depraved it is, is perfectly okay. There's several holes in that argument, but we're just going to stay laser-focused on the one that's right in front of us here. Because of that, there have been an awful lot of people in recent months and years, especially in the realms of academia, that have taken this to its logical conclusion. If the only thing that is wrong about somebody having sex is, is a lack of consent... And if the ultimate gauge of whether or not sex is good or not is as is, is long as everyone is enjoying it, then why not pedophilia? Maybe the kids would like it. Maybe they would enjoy themselves. Now, that is a abhorrent and disgusting thing to contemplate, obviously, because you're talking about kids. But if you're coming at it from that worldview, where the only measure of whether or not something is morally all right when it comes to sex is, is everybody having a good time? Then that actually does make sense from that specific worldview. It's a depraved and evil worldview, but coming from that worldview, that all kind of falls into place if that's your starting point. Error begets error. So, all that being said, what this means... Is that because we have so divorced morality from sexual activity, from their vantage point, what they're saying there is perfectly acceptable. Why wouldn't a kid be perfectly fine seeing a, a naked guy in bondage gear at a pride parade? Why would that be a bad thing? He he might even like seeing that. Yes, the parent doesn't want them to like that. In the same way, a parent keeps a child from you know that's 14 years old from binge drinking. Not because he thinks the child won't like the binge drinking. It's because he's afraid that he will. That's the point. Just because a kid likes it doesn't mean that they should do it. There are all kinds of things that are horribly dangerous that the kid might like and might want to do. You know, as I, when I was a little kid, I really liked cars. And at five or six years old, I would have loved to have had the opportunity to drive. I probably would have killed myself and others, but I would have liked to have done it. I would have enjoyed it, and I would have reacted with curiosity. So it must be okay, right? That's the job of a parent, to keep the kid from engaging in activities that would be harmful. Now, as we said earlier in the program, there are going to be some times where you have to let them uh, engage in at least a little bit of danger to be able to build up a resilience and tolerance so that they know how to function in a society when they're older. That's why at 15, we do allow kids to drive, even though it is dangerous, but only once they've reached a certain age of maturity where they can handle something like that. And for sexual intercourse, the line, the descriptor for when that is acceptable is and ought to be marriage, because that's the only context where sex can remain completely healthy. That doesn't mean every sexual relationship within a marriage is always healthy and there's no problems, but it does mean that anyone outside of the context of marriage is naturally unhealthy automatically. And that's the problem that we're running into. These are incredibly sick and twisted people. And the reason they're coming after your kids is because it's really not about what your kids want. I mean, they would like for the kids to like it too, but at the end of the day, it's really about what they want. Because otherwise, why would this guy suggest he's like, well, the kid might like it. He might not. Well, if there's even a chance the kid wouldn't like it and you're talking about sexually corrupting a minor, then shouldn't you err on the side of caution there, even if you are coming from your sick, twisted worldview? No, because see, at the end of the day, it's all about what he wants, not about what you want. or not about what your kid wants. At the end of the day, these people are just sexual deviants trying to pretend as though they're somehow on the side of the children. And I know that this is harsh, but there's a special place in hell for people that go after God's children in that way. A child's innocence is worth protecting. And I pray that we will always remain a country that on some level, even though we have problems in other areas, understands that and sees that as something legally worth protecting as well. The left is really starting to get a little too chummy well, I mean, any chummy is, is too much when it comes to a subject like this, but the left is really starting to get chummy with, with pedophiles and getting more comfortable with that. And I, I believe if I'm doing the show five years from now, it's going to be from a perspective of, okay, we lost the gay marriage debate. We lost the trans debate. Uh, there's people now that are saying that's perfectly okay. Even Christians that are claiming that's fine. Now the fight that we're having is the pedophilia thing. I genuinely believe that's a possibility in five to 10 years. I hate to say that, but I think it's the truth. Now that I've thoroughly depressed you, let's go to the chaplain's report. In
1: 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics.
0: Chaplain's Report comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. So, Uh, You may remember the last time that we were reading through the passage that David snuck into the cave and cut off a piece of Saul's robe, and then on his way back from having that piece of Saul's robe in his hand, he started feeling actually kind of bad about it. He said, this is something that was dishonorable for me to do to the Lord's anointed, and I need to go and return this piece of robe. So we're going to go ahead and read that passage right now. Let's go to 1 Samuel. Chapter 24, verses 8 through 11. Afterward, however, David got up and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David is seeking to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had handed you over to me today in the cave. And someone said to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not reach out with my hand against my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. So my father, look, indeed, look at the edge of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the edge of your robe, but did not kill you, Know and understand that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. One thing that's really interesting about this, this is actually the very first episode where David and Saul speak frankly to one another. Because there has been this tension and David and Saul have both known for a while that Saul was trying to kill David or at the very least trying to have someone else kill him. But it's always kind of been under the radar. It's always been something that's kind of unspoken. I mean, granted, when a person throws a spear at you twice and barely misses, I mean, everyone kind of knows at that point. But still, this is the first time, at least that we know of in the scripture, where they just speak openly about this and don't pretend as though that's not something that Saul has been plotting underneath the surface this whole time and it's interesting that when that conversation happens it's because david actually has the upper hand he has not only the actual advantage in the sense that he could have killed saul even though he chose not to but he also had the moral high ground and that's important here what happens here with david is he behaves as though this man is still the king still has God's favor, even though he would probably be justified in not doing so. Don't you think David could have probably gotten away with saying, well, this guy is my enemy, whether he's the Lord's anointed or not, and he's trying to take my life, and so I'm going to treat him that way. And I think he also would have been justified in saying, well, you know, Samuel anointed me. I'm the real king of Israel, and Saul's not. And so really, Saul should be the one prostrating himself to me and, and paying me fealty and pledging his loyalty to me rather than the other way around. I don't think the, either one of those, honestly, would have been unreasonable or even sinful. But David didn't do that. Because whether or not it was sinful or whether or not he could have gotten away with doing either of those two things, it wasn't about doing the bare minimum or doing what was acceptable to God. It was about doing what was right before God. You see, three times there, David goes out of his way to show submission to his king. And ultimately, that submission is not submission to Saul as a man, but as a king that God anointed. And you see that in that latter verse. You see that he bowed his head to the floor and prostrated himself. You see that he called him my lord. And then you also see later he says, father, father giving him the title of an authority figure. And that's even more important when you consider in their culture, father was something that was revered much more. And, and we they had a different kind of relationship with how they saw the father at the time. And I don't just mean father in the sense of the heavenly father. I mean, just fa- earthly fathers had a different kind of relationship with their sons than 21st century Americans do. Whether it's good or bad or not, they just did. And so three occasions there, you see David actually reaching out And literally, the the literal sense of the word, humiliating himself to show deference to this person who was trying to kill him. So when Jesus says, much later, and remember Jesus is the descendant of David. When Jesus says, about a thousand years after this, to love your enemies, David believed it and was living it. This is a person that's trying to kill him and has every reason for David to hate him and he chooses not to. And remember, that father that he gave at the end of that, that's not just a fancy title that he's giving to him because he's the king. He's also literally his father-in-law. Remember that McCall married David, so Saul's daughter is David's wife and so he is his son-in-law. So when he calls him father, there's actually a relationship there. And so all of these things he says that he does because he acknowledges that Saul is the Lord's anointed. Maybe he doesn't have God's favor anymore. Maybe God has chosen David to be king over Saul. And by the way, he has. We know that from scripture. And yet, despite all this, David goes out of his way to show Saul, Saul, you and I have no quarrel. I'm not trying to take your life. Why are you listening to these people that are saying that I'm coming after you or that I'm sort of imagining some kind of ill. If I wanted to kill you, I would have done it today and I did not So knock it off. Quit listening to these things and feeding the crazy voices in your head that I'm coming after you. I, I'm not rebelling against you. I have no animosity towards you. In fact, I could have taken your life. I had it handed to me on a silver platter by God himself would have been perfectly justified in killing you, and I didn't want to because it was the wrong thing to do. Actually, it wouldn't even have necessarily been the wrong thing to do since God delivered him to him. But David chose not to anyway, because he wanted to do what was not just acceptable, but what was right, what was best, what God would have ideally wanted him to do. And I think that that speaks to us. You see, David is expressing dual loyalties here. He's expressing loyalty to his king, but he's only expressing loyalty to that king ultimately because he recognizes that authority was handed to him by God. And as modern-day Christians, sometimes we have to do exactly the same thing. When it comes to elders, for example, in the church, I don't agree with everything my elders have done. There's some times where I've voiced my opinions to them, and, and I was very much against the decision that they reached. But at the end of the day, I realize that the authority that they have does come directly from God, and I am honor-bound to obey and, and to acknowledge that. Now, if they start doing something that is against God or against the Scripture, then I actually have a responsibility to do the opposite. If i got to choose between obeying my elders and obeying God, i got to obey God. That if obeying my elders, even though I don't necessarily want to, would still be in accordance to God's Word, they're not doing anything that's unscriptural, then I do have an obligation as a Christian and a member of the church that they oversee to listen to them. And and that is true in many other relationships, the the father-son relationship, the spousal relationship, the relationship even of uh, bosses, political leaders, that kind of thing. We could go on and on and flesh all that out, but ultimately what's going on here is that David sees his loyalty to Saul as an extension of his loyalty to God. Now that doesn't mean he sits there and, and lets Saul violate God's law and murder him, I mean, that that would also be a violation of listening to God. But David sees this loyalty, sees this deference as something that God would want because at one time at least, this person was anointed by God to be Israel's king and that meant they were David's king as well. And he understood that and recognized it and he tried to show Saul. He begged and pleaded with him, Saul, knock it off. I'm not trying to hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. Please quit pursuing me. And you see that really at the very end. And he says, even though I know you're lying in wait for me, I know you're trying to take my life, I'm still not going to raise my blade against you. And I want you to think about this from both sides. Think about it from Saul's perspective and from David's perspective, because I think we've all been both at one point in our life. I think it's almost inevitable that sometimes we have imagined somebody was an enemy when they really weren't, or even if they were an enemy, we thought that they were after us or they were out to get us. And it turned out at least at this one particular instance, they happened to not be, that happens. Sometimes we perceive things that aren't necessarily true, where we were missing some crucial bit of information that would have helped us understand that this person meant no harm. Now, normally it doesn't come in the case of someone trying to murder us, but granted, we've all been in that situation where we thought somebody was, was out to get us, and then it turns out, oh, they actually didn't mean that thing. I, I thought they were trying to insult me. It turns out they weren't, or they didn't actually mean it that way, that sort of thing. So that happens to us all the time. So from Saul's perspective, regardless of how Saul reacts here, and we'll go over that in the next lesson. But regardless of Saul, how Saul reacts, he has an opportunity here to do the right thing by God and acknowledge that the person that is saying what they are really didn't mean harm. And it's always better to ascribe some kind of ignorance or incompetence over immorality or malice. In this case, I don't even think Saul has a case for the lower version of that. But in our cases and in our daily lives, it's always best for us to remember that the other person probably isn't out to get us. And we shouldn't assume that unless we have a really good reason to think that that is the case. But then, and this is more important, think about it from David's perspective. Because I think what David does here is significantly harder. David is in the position of having somebody that he knows is out to get him. I mean, he there's not a higher out to get you than a guy coming after you with his army. I mean, it's very clear what Saul's intentions are here. And he's already tried to kill him before this several times earlier. So there's no confusion. And David's speech actually speaks to this. There's no confusion about what's going on here or what Saul wants. And David takes the position of, yes, I know he's trying to do evil towards me. It doesn't matter. I'm going to choose to do good towards him anyway. You cannot. Defeat evil with good, or you cannot defeat evil with more evil. You have to defeat evil with good. Ooh, I almost messed up there. You have to counter hatred with love because if your the answer to their hatred is you hating them, you're just going to breed more hatred and you're both going to get caught in a downward spiral. That's not going to end well. As Jordan Peterson would say, that is not good. When it comes down to a situation like this, where we know we've been wronged, where we know that the other person was out to get us, they showed malice, I want you to notice how strong a person it takes in the character of David to forgive that person and to show them grace, which is unmerited favor, favor that they did not earn. Saul definitely did not deserve this good treatment from David, not only extended to the fact that he spared his life, but that on top of that, he also showed him respect and reverence and tried to go out of his way to bury the hatchet and create peace. Be that person. That's what I'm asking. You want to make the world a better place? We've talked a lot tonight about how scary it's getting out there, and it is. But if you want to make the world a better place, do exactly what David did. Even when you know somebody's out to get you, even when you know somebody is an enemy that is knocking at your door that would love nothing more than to tear you down, Show them respect even when they don't deserve it and haven't earned it. And show them that you mean them no harm. I believe if more Christians did this on a frequent basis and and took the David position, that we'd have a lot more Christians in this country. Because it's hard not to be drawn into that. To somebody that you know you've wronged, that you know you have done everything in your power to tear them down and they still love you, and they still want to do right by you, and they still don't want to do to you what you want to do to them. It's hard not to change your mind when confronted with something like that. And the reason that is the case is because that's the love of Christ. David doesn't always show the love of Christ. Don't get me wrong. He's still a flawed human being, and he makes several mistakes later on in the same book. But right here, that's about as close a correlation to Christ's love in the Old Testament that you're going to find loves his enemy so much that he shows respect and deference for them and shows them that he loves them and still wants what's best for him, while he's trying to kill him, I mean, that's an echo of the cross right there. And the best thing that we can do for this world is to also echo that cross. That even our enemies look at us and are impressed by our morality, even if they don't understand it like Saul didn't. Remind people of the ideal version of themselves. Give them that opportunity. David is essentially saying to Saul here, Saul, this could be you. You could be a great king. You could be somebody that has a life full of love and joy and contentment if you just did what God asked you to do and quit going after people that you're so terrified of losing your own power, you're willing to rip your own family apart to preserve it. David, in a sense, is reminding him of who Saul used to be and who he could be again. And sometimes that's exactly the same reminder that we need for ourselves. We need to have somebody to stand there and remind us of the ideal version of ourselves, the God-given talent and potential that he put in us if we'll just listen to him and follow his word. And sometimes we need to be the person that brings that message to somebody that isn't living up to that potential. And I genuinely believe if more Christians were better at this, it would solve a great deal. Maybe not all, but an awful lot of the world's problems. And that's something worth thinking about. Stay the course, friends.
1: Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Reda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.